La cour, the court. Good morning. Please be seated. In the case Attorney General of Quebec et al. versus Alexandre Bissonnet, for the appellant Attorney General of Quebec, Jean-François Paré, Sylvain Leboeuf, Julie Da Silva, Stéphanie Kirion Quentin. For the appellant, Her Majesty the Queen, François Godin, Olivier T. Raymond. For the intervener, Attorney General of Canada, Ian Demers. Of Ontario, Milan Rupik and Katie Doherty. For the intervener, Attorney General of British Columbia, Micah B. Renkin. For the interveners, Toronto Police Association, Canadian Police Association, et al. Timothy S. B. Denson and Marjan Delavar. For the intervener, Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, Mathieu Saint-Germain, Jason Fraser. For the intervener, National Council of Canadian Muslims, Samia Omer, Daniel Cullen. For the intervener, for the intervener National Security Measures Observatory, Stephanie Bolak. For the intervener, Defense Association, Defense Lawyers Association, Montreal, Lavade Longoy, Juliette Vanney. Society, Eric Portsky, uh, and Alex Tolliday. For the intervener, Queen's Prison Law Clinic, Aaron Dan and Paul Soka. For the intervener, Canadian Prison Law Association, Simon Boris. For the intervener, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Stephanie Di Giuseppe and Archie Mann. For the intervener, British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, Daniel Rabitaille and Carly Pedal. Maître Perry. Mr. Perry, Chief Justice, uh, judges, good morning. Your court is hearing an important legal debate on constitutional and penal matters. You will be examining the legality of the response from the legislature when it comes to the balance between when it has to paroles when it comes to murders in the case of multiple murders. And in this, there's a fundamental legal matter. Of course, there's an unprecedented uh, tragedy that was experienced by a community in Quebec and Canada. I would like to indicate my specific role as Attorney General of Quebec. We are intervening to support the constitutional validity of Section 751. We are represented by 
the respondent will be represented by Francois Codin, and we'll talk about the sentences. On that, I will be making no representations when it comes to sentencing of Mr. Bissonnet. I will leave those arguments for my colleague. When looking at these uh, provisions, we must bear in mind the fact that this is a provision that sanctions the worst crime committed in Canada when committed more than once. Considering the time that I have, I would like to focus on three main topics. First of all, the scope and criteria of set 51.52 of the Criminal Code. Secondly, the legislative purpose of the provision. And thirdly, compliance of this provision in light of section 7 and 12 of the Charter. Mr. Paré, when we look at second-degree murder, is it directly before us? It is not the matter directly before us, considering the fact that these are first-degree murders that are being applied to Mr. Bissonnet. But of course, I'm talking about the constitutionality of the provision. As a result, the interaction between seven of this section will be part of the representations we make when I talk about the scope of 745.51. Question, are you not going to talk about the scope? Well, you talk about the scope, but should we determine that issue? Answer, we should decide on the validity of section 745.51. One refers to set 45A to understand the provision the discretionary power that is provided through this uh, provision, we need to look at the entire provision. I am also aware of the fact that the provision applies to Mr. Bissonnet in the case of first degree murder. Question, Mr. Paré, you said that you are aware that the provision applies to Mr. Bissonnet. You are aware of the Alberta Court of Appeal decision in Garland where there was a statutory interpretation of the provision that was made and there was a dissenting judge. I understand that here the Court of Appeal says this in paragraph 65 of the judgment that all parties agreed that the provision applies independently of the fact that multiple murders were committed during the same criminal transaction during distinct events. That's not my point. The text of the provision 745.51 uses two events as if the multiple murders are committed when the person is convicted during the same trial for several multiple murders. The, in, the statutory interpretation of the dissenting judge in Alberta was that this, this provision should not apply in cases like that committed by Mr. Bissonnet. What do you have to say to that? Answer. Madam Cote, I don't intend to address that since you've clearly said in your introduction that the parties agree and the court ruled that this provision applies in this case. This is the dissenting judge in Garland. Well, what we are saying is that we need to look at the majority in Garland and the provision applies independently of what you said previously. So 745.51 applies to this situation. And you would see that when I explain the legislative purpose of the provision, it's clear. 
it's clear that it applies to everyone. But Mr. Pare, you talk about the legislative provision. Maybe the text does not reflect the legislative purpose. We'll see. My question also refers to the Sconey case. When two offenses are tried together and a single conviction is done for each at the end of the trial, they should be considered as a single to determine if a more severe sentence is required according to what was stated in 1982 by this court. The provision will not apply in this case. Answer. Maybe Mr. Godin would come up with an interpretation which will respond to my concerns. What I'm seeing here, Madam Cote, is that for us it's clear that the appeal court decision, in the appeal court decision, all parties agreed, and this provision applied to Mr. Bisonet. It is in this context that I'll be presenting the legislative purpose of the provision and its validity. And you will see that we will be proposing that the Court of Appeal made a mistake. It was too restrictive. Question, before we go there, I have a question for you. Will I be wrong if I said that you are asking us to analyze the provision of legality and the constitutionality of the provision of in light of Section 7 of the Charter before we move to Section 12. Why? Because this goes against our learnings in no Lloyd Willing. We see the specific provision before we move to the general one. I am aware of that, um, Mr. Wagner, Justice Wagner. The difference here is that this is not a minimum sentence. Of course, we would be looking here at the scope of Section 12. We are not here in a mandatory context. I believe that the arguments I'll be presenting here under 7 are important. There will be a reflection on Section 12 after. So we need to consider that when we are analyzing seven, seven, Section 12, 7 is not overbroad. When I know that the test that we have to carry out, when it comes to the impact of this provision on the accused in 74551, of course, we need to look at the scope. And we should, when we are analyzing the impact on 12, we should find out if this section is not overbroad. Question, do you agree with me that if we were to consider that this provision breaches Section 12, it's not necessary to go look at Section 7? Answer, I agree with you totally, Chief Justice, but we wanted to present it this way in the factum, considering the fact that for us, as the court analyzed the situation, the Court of Appeal clearly did. When you look at the Court of Appeal judgment, the Arguments are interrelated. For us, it was, first of all, important to, first of all, present specific, concise arguments to deal with that subject. And then under Section 12, we'll not be dealing with excessive impacts. So it doesn't taint our analysis. Last question on this subject, because there may be others. If we were to conclude that, indeed, the provision violates the Charter of Rights, Section 12. Do you agree that this cannot be saved by Section 1? Answer, we did not make any representation of Section 1, Chief Justice, and we will not be doing that this morning, even if there is potential reparation. May I continue on that vein, Mr. Parry?
why did you not make any submissions under Section 1? You are pleading extensively on the purpose of the law. Could we take it from your silence that you are conceding you are conceding the point on the Section 1? Answer, Justice Kassira, aware of the differences between the test under 1 and the test under 7, in this case, we chose to focus on the scope of Section 7 and 12 as it refers to this provision. Of course, arguments under 7 mainly may be mixed up. Of course, there's a balancing test that we have to do with Section 7. I am also aware that the Supreme Court wrote some sentences in the last decision, Bedford, where it becomes uh, more difficult to justify this provision. To f if there's a violation under 7, it may be possible, but it's more difficult, and it's a choice we made not to do that. Let me reiterate the three topics, the purpose, uh, compliance. For us, I would like to reiterate before the court that I think it's important to understand the legal errors that we identified in our submission. The Court of Appeal implied that there was, there was a particular standard the Court of Appeal implicitly establishes a principle or a st constitutional standard that after 25 there should be revision of parole rules. It also raises the principle of rehabilitation and reintegration to a level where it's as if it becomes a constitutional principle. Question, at this level, we are talking about rehabilitation. How does this rehabilitation principle included in the new provision? We said rehabilitation is part of our fundamental values when it comes to sentencing. I would like to know how you are tying this princi fundamental principle to a provision that prevents all rehabilitation, which constitutes a death sentence via incarceration. Answer, I will handle your the issues you've raised. When it comes to the constitutional validity of 745.51, we have not forgotten that we are looking at the legality and validity of the provision and not a decision that a judge may arrive at on a certain file. The criteria provided for under 745.51 require that we must integrate the, the discretionary power that the trial judge has to a provision that is clearly valid and standardized. I say that because 745.51 in general, well, will take the same criteria. The judge can consider all factors to de to in the sentencing procedure. Now, when you ask about knowing whether the provision obliterates rehabilitation, I do not agree because 745.51 allows a judge to exercise discretionary power and to take into account rehabilitation in cases that will allow for that. Let me take the example of the Alberta uh, Attorney General, the table that is included in his brief of factum. There are many cases in Canada where 
it was decided that that provision will not be applied. In some cases, factors of rehabilitation were considered important. Questions, adopting the legislation as stated is not applicable then because convict, give somebody a life sentence with no possibility of parole before 150 years. In my opinion, that means that the rehabilitation criterion has been forgotten. Answer, you talked about 150 years. Mr. Gordon will be talking about, well, such statements question. We could take whatever scenario you want, but we could get to sentences. Let me use the word ridiculous, sentences that are ridiculous. Clearly, the person cannot survive that period. So I wonder, what is the purpose? Does it make sense to give such a sentence? Does it not lead us into a system where people will mock the justice system with such sentences? Let me answer using legislative purposes, if you would allow Chief Justice. The legislative purpose of this provision was to enable us better reflect the gravity through sentences for multiple murders. Well, we already have life sentence. Is there any more severe sentence than, life, like, than a life sentence? Answer, let me take the case of Shropshire. When we, they wanted to take into this issue, the legislator has as resource this means to delay parole. This mechanism has already been used. It was used while applying 745.4, the interaction between 745 and 745.4 and 745.51 were preserved. The purpose, the legislative purpose of this provision clearly is to allow for punishment while reflecting the gravity of an issue irrespective of the mechanism. And when we look at section seven, we consider that the purpose is legitimate and appropriate. Whether it's excessive is another matter. Question, to complete the question the Chief Justice asked, what the appeal court is saying in paragraph 93, while repeating the same absurdity to use the term used by the Court of Appeal, ridiculous, absurd, it's about the same. It's that the tribunal should not issue an order that can never be implemented. That is what discredits the administration of justice, make a judgment impossible to implement. What do you have to say to that answer? This, first of all, all decisions in Canada, and I'm also referring to the table prepared by the Attorney General of Alberta, no judge went beyond 75 years of eligibility. Now, vision as it stands, it's not the maximum. The provision is based on principles of penal law, based on principles that rely on all tools of penal law, all the tools are provided for to make sure that a judge doesn't 
arrive at this absurd decision. The provision does not, or rather, the, in reality, the provision provides for the use of all mechanisms provided for in criminal law so that we don't find ourselves in such absurdities. We talked about 800 years, 1,000 years, and so on and so forth. What I want to say is that it's trial judges who have the discretion and have all the tools available to them in the criminal code to make sure that all factors are weighed. Of course, in cases like that of Sarinsky, Garland, where we have cold-blooded murders, children that are disembodied, cannibalism is even mentioned. In such cases, the principles of rehabilitation and reintegration will be part of the character of the offender, will be analyzed by a judge, and in some cases will be set okay. aside. So what is lacking when it comes to the provision for murder? A first-degree murderer would be sentenced to life without any possibility of parole for 25 years. So what is missing? If the detainee is a bloodthirsty murderer with no chance of parole, he is going to remain in prison and die there. Conversely, if this person some way can be rehabilitated and demonstrate with satisfaction to the board that he can be rehabilitated, then the person comes back to society. So what is missing? What is missing that was necessary for the new legislation? Josh. Chief Justice, to answer your question, in my condensed book regarding the recent decision by your court, Noor, it partially answers your question. To probably understand the roles of everyone here and the role of the sentencing judge versus the role of the parole board, there is a distinction. In fact, in 2015, this court wrote an argument that was brought up by the Attorney General of Canada that there could be a possible decision on uh, the minimum sentencing by the parole board. To ensure safe reintegration is uh, the goal and not to make sure that the detainee serves a proportionate sentence. This is the decision of the trial judge. Earlier, I mentioned Shropshire, and this court set out the same analysis to differentiate and mentioned that it was a valid mechanism to put the focus on punishment. Also, in RVMCA, it was accepted for that mechanism to be used because it was up to the sentencing judge here to look at the totality of circumstances. And Chief Justice, we can hear from experts. It can be very clear. We can look at uh, the, the criminal history, and then it would be okay to say when this awesome. is decided that looking at the uh, weighing of other factors, that this individual would not be able to be released. Question. 
I've always thought that the fundamental values that reflect the Canadian society are denunciation, the protection of the public, but also rehabilitation in hopes that an individual can reintegrate into society. That is a fundamental value. And in certain cases, denunciation and protection, uh, well, that individual will be imprisoned for life. There is no greater sentence because the death penalty was abolished in 76. So life imprisonment is the most severe sentence. And if the individual is capable of rehabilitation, that is part of our fundamental values. So my question is, what's missing? Answer. Chief Justice, that is what I'm trying to answer for you. Here, Parliament is the legislator. And the legislator observed inequity between uh, the person who commits the two different types of murder. You mention, or rather, uh, parole is a revision of the sentence. And you said the death penalty was abolished in 76, and that was a political compromise made at that time between the abolitionists and those who wanted to preserve the death sentence. And the line was drawn at 25 years. In Garland, Saretsky, etc., but already judge or 25 years. 25 years is high for uh, ineligibility. In many countries, it's only 15 or 10, uh, 18 years before parole eligibility. It's 25 years in Canada. It's very severe. Answer. I take your point, Chief Justice. The message I want to send to you this morning is very simple. I hear what you're saying on rehabilitation. But two things. Number one, an individual can spend the rest of their life imprisoned, and I think Canada accepts that. For example, someone who is later in life, who receives a 25-year sentence, will spend the rest of their life in prison. Also, regarding Garland, you said probably the parole board will not grant parole to that individual, and that individual will most likely spend the rest of their days in prison, and Canadian society accepts that. And I hear what you're saying on uh, denunciation, and that's an important value, and you said so in La Casse, and I fully agree. But 745.51 uh, allows for discretion. If not, we would be talking about something else. Question. But it's not mandatory. It provides for the judge's discretion. So let's suppose that it is constitutional and the judge in his wisdom decides that the individual ineligibility period for parole should be greater than 25 years. But that discretion is limited because if that decision is made that ineligibility should be exceed 25 years, the only other choice is to jump to 50 years. So that's extremely limited discretion. And that is what Chief Justice is getting at. Obviously, if there's a judge who decides that it does, uh, it does deserve uh, three 25-year sentences, that is discretion, but it's extremely limited. Justice Cote, I have a 
two points to my answer. For that discretion to make sense, in respect to that provision, it has to be based on very concrete uh, decision-making factors. To answer your question, what should we do with this limited discretion? First of all, uh, the blocks of 25 years, that is the decision made by the legislator in their wisdom. Question, did the legislator see the link between the life of uh, the victims and the ineligibility period? Answer, this is what the Court of Appeal is proposing. And we're not fully in agreement. We propose two solutions. Or rather, here we are talking about the most incorrigible murderers. And then we look at each life lost. We suggest... I'm at tab 2 at uh, paragraph 462 of my condensed book. The trial judge preferred proportionality looking at the uh, severeness of crimes and the uh, degree of responsibility to enforce denunciation in order to protect uh, society. We're very close to that objective, but the exception is uh, that uh, Protection of society for us is the guiding principle. When we have a detainee, obviously that protects society by the simple fact of detaining them. It's clear to us that the uh, le legislative uh, objective is to protect society. To answer your question, each uh, life lost will be taken into account in that analysis. And regarding the 25-year blocks, if the legislative objective is uh, 25 years for each life lost, which also predetermines the calculation, and secondly, it's as if we made that provision mandatory, because each time I would not associate each life lost with a block of 25 years, I would go beyond my legislative objectives. So, when the Court of Appeal uh, made its decision, it looked at the results, and it's clear to us that the provision is constitutional. But the real legislative objectives obviously were to take each life into account, to take the victims into account. And how to do that? It, we have to be more severe with the sentencing. And in sentencing, the uh, sentencing judge will be able to weigh all criteria in 745.51 and 718. And it's in that very specific context, and I'll come back to you, Justice Cote, where the uh, trial judge's discretion lies. Question. I would like to uh, follow Justice Cote's train of thought on discretion because there's something I don't understand. And I'd like for you to explain it to us. The appeal court brings up a type of paradox regarding discretion. It says regarding 745 that the power is not, uh, is not 
does not uh, avoid excessive sentencing. There's not enough uh, guidelines for it. And also there is a fault because the discretion is not, uh, does not make it possible to uh, cut down 25-year blocks as the trial judge wanted to do. In most judgments on sentencing, for example, I think of a minimum sentencing, we see discretion, discretionary power in one way only. But here it seems like there are two different heads to this uh, entity of discretion. What is your vision of discretion? And if I'm understanding you, discretion should always be exercised constitutionally? if I refer to your factum. Answer, Justice Kassir, in 745, we wondered a few things about this section, like you, um, because we wondered if it was had enough guidelines to avoid excessive sentencing. And I'll repeat, here, discretion uh, is not to be considered own. Obviously, minimum sentences, and you said this many times. I'll take Nur, for example, or Lloyd. If the judge had discretionary power, of course, we wouldn't be here, and the provision would have been saved. The judge would have been able to ensure that the sentence was a fit and appropriate. But we see an error in the, in the appeals court decision. We think that this uh, provision could not have more guidelines. The first question you asked me pertained to uh, what could this lead to? And what I say to that is when there's a sentencing judge at the trial level that decides on the sentence and has the tools to do so and has all the criteria, the judge has all criteria to decide whether this provision applies. So, of course, uh, to us, that is enough guidelines. And regarding the appeal court, there was a limit when it came to the blocks of 25 years. So that uh, disc discretion when it comes to first-degree murder, uh, the 25-year block years, 25 year blocks were used. And this is a, the choice of the legislator. If there's a trial judge who looks at the uh, evidence, who looks at expert reports, and looks at all evidence before him, it is clear that if the judge is not comfortable regarding the character of the offender and all circumstances surrounding the offense, perhaps they can choose 25 or 50 years or not even apply this provision. Question, let's suppose that the judge did take into consideration all factors, and I'm not necessarily talking only about Mr. Bissonnette, but another uh, convicted person. And the judge says, I think at 25 years is too early. I prefer tw 35 years, having taken all factors into account. What is the solution there? Because it's not serious enough to um, sentence 50 years, the judge decides on 35 years. Is there any way to read this provision 
um, or can the judge not go past 25 years? This is a question Judge Yuat asked himself. I'm not telling you that this is what I think, but let's uh, take for granted in the situation I described, described to you that that's what happened and the judge decides on 35 years and can't decide between 25 and 50 years is the solution just to go with the 25 years of ineligibility. I'll be very clear, yes, they cannot exceed 25 years uh, considering the totality of the sentence and this is to the benefit of the accused. And this is the question that the trial judge asked. He decided to rewrite the provision and this is not before you today. And I think it's in his uh, paragraph 708. He made that comment that you're making Justice Cote in your question to ask what would I do if I wasn't comfortable with uh, 50. I think the judge has to sentence 25 years and that is to the benefit of the accused. Question. But perhaps the provision is not properly written in its current wording perhaps 25 years is 25 years sufficient? Well is this provision uh, effective? Is it ideal? We can ask questions about that mechanism of 25-year blocks. But if we analyze excessive scope, for example, if we look to Section 12, we can ask, is this provision useful for uh, multiple murders or only some cases of multiple murder? I understand it your comment. I understand that the mechanism can sometimes lead to results where we would have to go down, for example, from 75 to 50 years or 50 to 25. But in any of these cases, it would be to the benefit of the accused. You mentioned Section 12. What is the analysis for discretion? The trial judge referred to Noor. Was he right in doing so? No, the judge was not. The Judge was not right that the neuroanalysis on minimum sentences has less to do with a discretion regarding a parole or conditional release. Our submission regarding to 12 is that we look at 12 and ask if it is a cruel and unusual punishment. At uh, tab 24 of my book, you have a page in yellow. And I have to add that certain sentences or certain treatments are always grossly disproportionate and uh, outrage human dignity. For example, um, whipping, lobotomy of certain dangerous criminals, castration of sexual criminals question or a sentence that uh, rules out rehabilitation answer but as you say chief justice it is not the provision that leads to that leads to life imprisonment
without eligibility. It's the judge. The judge is free to consider rehabilitation as a possibility. But the character of this uh, litigant is such that uh, that parole eligibility can be set aside. And I want to make sure that you're understanding our position here. It's not the provision that takes away the judge's power to take that into consideration. Question. Well, the matter is decided here was not in first-degree murder cases, at least. Could there be a circumstance where this discretion may be exercised without offending Section 2? Is that not a question? Absolutely. I think that, well, we have many cases in case law on many f cases, I have 33 here, f cited by the Attorney General of Alberta, where we have some cases where we went, people went beyond 25, some 75, some 50. In circumstances where the, the conscience of Canadians wasn't shocked, here there was no violation of human dignity in coming up with such a sentence a sentence by a trial judge who had all factors before him, allowing him, considering the character of the offender, the circumstances, the objective gravity of the offense, and so on, to come up with a sentence that required pushing the eligibility period to 50 years. Would you accept that 50 years? 50 years of ineligibility means the same thing as a life sentence? Answer, absolutely, Mr. Justice. We have no choice but to accept that submission because in some cases it would clearly lead in some specific cases with specific evidence with a judge that has considered all factors. In some cases it will clearly lead to a life sentence without possibility of parole. It will be the same case for a murder by a 60-year-old person who will have the minimum sentence of 25 years. Question, well, we are sending you many questions and you are still standing. This is honorable, but you have not really answered the question asked by Justice Brown. Should I take it that the discretion should be exercised in a way that neutralizes the violation of the charter that the provision allows on the face of it? Is that your point? Answer, no, that's not my point. There's a difference between a sentence by a judge because in all cases, a sentence could be inappropriate. A sentence by a judge here. Here, the provision allows a judge to grant ineligibility for parole beyond 25 years and could even go up to 50 or 75 years. But when we analyze this provision, we take it for granted that the judge will be coming up with a sentence that is fair and proportionate. This judge will have looked at a specific case and, 
the specific individual to arrive at a proportionate sentence. If it's not the case, there's an appeal court. And in, such, in some cases, the sentence may be inappropriate if so determined. Mr. Perry, let me continue with this line of questioning. There's rehabilitation when exercising discretion. That's one thing. And secondly, we have the sentence imposed. Is it possible to exercise discretion according to this uh, section while recognizing the possibility of rehabilitation? That's one problem. The sentence doesn't recognize the possibility of rehabilitation because even with a 50-year sentence, even with an 80-year-old offender, clearly it's impossible to have the possibility of parole. That is the problem, I believe in the questions being asked. Answer, I think that in this case, and you have the Superior Court uh, judgment statements, in some cases, which may be rare, and an 18-year-old who receives a 50-year sentence would go up to 68 years. So I don't think that the chances of rehabilitation are totally are not. Well, there's a delinquent in prison who dies before 61. I understand that. On rehabilitation, Mr. Justice, I don't believe we can talk about this provision and the constitutionality of this provision without talking about the Decali ruling, which is in tab 22 of my condensed book, paragraph 71. You're court came up with an important decision on the constitutional analysis of sentencing procedures. The issue was to find out whether the proportionality of the sentence could become a principle of fundamental justice in light of Section 7. And this is what was written. The principles and objectives for determining a fair sentence, including rehabilitation, including the fundamental principle of proportionality, does not benefit from constitutional from constitutionality constitutional di dimensions we have a provision that doesn't include rehabilitation automatically but has discretion included a judge who wants a fair and proportionate sentence has the discretion to consider all this in more severe cases. Very quickly, I see my time is running out and only have a minute left. I would like to conclude with the following. First of all, let me remind you that Canadians will not be shocked to learn that in all objectivity, a judge during sentencing after analyzing factors and all criteria for sentencing, exercises his discretion and comes up with parole, such parole conditions in clear cases. The issue here is the legality of the provision and not the judge's sentence that allows the exercise of the discretion by the trial judge based on provisions that are valid in light of 745.51 
After having studied all evidence, the judge could come up with a fair and proportionate sentence, exercising discretion when using this provision. Thank you very much. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Gooden. Chief Justice, justices, good morning. My submission is based on the fact that Section 74551 is constitutional. We will be submitting that the ineligibility period of 50 years for parole is justified in the case of Mr. Bissonnet, considering his character, his nature, and the circumstances of the crimes committed. These are the three criteria under 745.51. We are talking about six first-degree murders, the most severe crimes in Canadian history. Three of those crimes were direct executions, 40 murder attempts, including four children, the use of a firearm in, in a church, in a, in a place of prayer, carried out with determination and planning. Mr. Bissonnette had 50 shells used 48, recharged his firearm several times, and was lucid enough to keep one because his initial plan was to commit suicide after the crime and kept one to commit suicide. This is a crime that was planned for a long time. Mr. Bissonnet wanted to carry out this shooting since 2016 when he went to a mall. This crime is motivated by hate. While Mr. Bissonnet was detained, he lied. He lied to the two psychiatrists that he met with, claiming that he was hearing voices. And eight months later, while he was still detained, and after having the opportunity to reflect on his acts, the only regret he had was not having killed more people. All this with the risk of repeating the offense on a, a violent crime described as moderate. This is not a theft. This is a murder we are talking about. So what we're saying, with all respect for any contrary opinion, is that there is no other way to reflect the gravity, the gravity of the act committed by Mr. Bissonnet and to prolong this ineligibility period to 50 years. Question, we all agree that this was one of the most horrible crimes we've ever witnessed, a crime based on racism, Islamophobia, on hatred that is going to leave uh, scars on all Quebec and Canadian society, something never seen before in Quebec. This will leave scars for a long time, so there's no doubt that this was a horrible crime. The question before us today is clearly the fact that Mr. Bissonnet deserves the maximum sentence provided for by a law, a life sentence without possibility of parole before 25 years. The question is, up to what point within the framework of our fundamental values that guide our criminal and justice system? One of the ingredients of these values is denunciation and public protection and of course rehabilitation. At what point do we fall when we look at rehabilitation? if we were to come up with cumulative sentences of ineligibility of several 25 years 
I'm talking of the specific case of Mr. Bissonnette. It's one of the reasons why we are asking for a 50-year period today, because in Mr. Bissonnette's case, rehabilitation and reintegration, in our opinion, will be secondary as a purpose. The main purpose is denunciation, deterrence. Rehabilitation is secondary. The fact that we are coming up with a 50-year period allows for a form of rehabilitation because he will be 77 when he is eligible for parole. Question. Well, the argument is somewhat flawed. When we know that, according to statistics, long-term offenders usually die around 60 years. So when someone gets to 70, chances of rehabilitation are highly reduced. So is that argument not flawed to say that this person has a chance of rehabilitation? And I do not believe so because from the time where our society accepts that people convicted for first degree murder could die in prison and could be there till 75, from, from your argument this person will never leave prison. If what you are saying is uh, true, in 25 years that this person cannot be rehabilitated, he will never leave. So what are you asking more, more besides a death sentence? The criminal law system is a system of values. The messages sent by judges is the judges that send a message. We are looking at Garland. Beyond reach, but they are not beyond justice. Alors, le message de justice, dit... So the justice messages are sent by the judges. I'm not saying that Bissonnette cannot be rehabilitated. He's a, he went to university, received support from his family, and if he takes control of himself while in prison, it's possible that he could be released. I understand that he may be 77 years old, but what we have now as tool is to reflect the gravity of acts, and in criminal law, we don't have any any other. We're simply, it's the application of cumulative sentences. And in the case of Bissonnet, this is constitutional. It's a clear case. Eight months later, his only regret is that he didn't kill many more people. He had time to reflect. He had time to think about his acts. We are not asking for the death sentence here. We are asking, well, the sentence is a life, one, it's a life sentence, but the period we are seeking is to reflect the gravity of the crime. The fundamental principle when it comes to sentencing is 718.1. The gravity of the crimes with the responsibility of the offender. Question. Agree with me, Mr. Godin, that a sentence has a role to play if it makes sense, if it can be implemented. A sentence that cannot be implemented, would that not rather discredit the criminal and, and justice system? Answer, in some cases, we must totally remove the criterion of rehabilitation and reintegration. I don't think that a 50-year period for Mr. Bissonnette will discredit the justice system. I would respectfully submit that it will be the contrary because the victims of these crimes family members. Well, we explained to them that we'll be seeking a cumulative sentence, which reflects the gravity of the offense. People who are victims of these crimes are expecting justice. 
is a corresponding sentence. I agree with you that a 50-year sentence is extremely long. I do agree. But it corresponds to the gravity of the actions committed. 718.1 is six multiple murders. Responsibility of the offender is total here. And when we look at what he did before, during, and after the crimes, his responsibility is total. Uh, question. According to you, in light of Section 12 of the Charter, what will be a cruel and unusual sentence? Answer, I think, with all due respect, that it's up to the legislator to decide. Because if I were to understand your question, the maximum should be, what should be the maximum? What should be our expectation? With all due respect, I think the legislator should be the one to answer that question. I see that in Canada today, is 75 years. We don't have any cases that go beyond 75. Now we are asking for 50 years in Mr. Bissonnette's case, and we think that in this case, this is not an unusual sentence. Question, you accept the fact that life imprisonment without poss reasonable possibility of parole, well, li a life sentence without any possibility of parole without any possibility of asking that asking for that is not something that exists in Canada answer I don't think I I do not quite understand your question question do you agree with the principle that a life sentence without po the possibility of seeking parole is something that is not accepted in Canadian law Answer. I would answer by saying I do not agree with that statement. I think for some crimes, we must totally set aside rehabilitation. That was not my colleague's question. My colleague wanted to know if you think in Canadian criminal law there is a provision that provides for a life sentence without the possibility of rehabilitation or parole before 25 years. No, I agree with you, no. Question, so when you say that in the case before us, the fact that somebody could ask, it doesn't mean that it's gonna be granted, asking for parole at 77 years makes the sentence not to be unusual or cruel. Do you think it's a realistic possibility to tell someone you may ask for parole after 50 years? Do you think it increases the person's uh, chances of remaining in prison before asking for that uh, parole? Answer, I do not know. Conversely, I think that if it's 50 years, it, it gives some, it makes justice, a justice system will make more sense. How so? will be sending a message that the sentence reflected the gravity of the crime. Denunciation, denunciation, deterrence. So rehabilitation is not appropriate. It's the judges that impose sentences. And it's for them to say that in our value system, it's going to be 50, 50, after 50 years or after 25 years. They are the ones that send out the message. It's not, it's not the parole. Because in Bissonnette's case, he could live 
at some point or not leave. But it's up to the, we shouldn't be giving the judges a role to the parole board. Why we are asking? When we ask for 50 years, a submission we made before the appeal court and we are making before you today is that here in Canada, there are four cases of 75 years in three different provinces, one for 70 years in Ontario, several cases of 50 years, and a case for 35 years in Quebec, Mr. Barbeau in Quebec was sentenced to 35 years. So for us, it is clear that it's a 50-year period that should be imposed on Mr. Bissonnette. It's proportional to the gravity of the crime. It's proportional to the, his degree of moral culpability and the fact that several lives were snatched. It's also proportional to the firm message we are sending out that the justice system should be sending to people who may be tempted to carry out such mass killings. Question, Mr. Golden. I'll ask you the same question I asked Mr. Paré at the beginning of his arguments regarding the statutory provision 745.51 and the words in this uh, provision, the fact that someone is uh, convicted of murder and then has another conviction. In other words, in a case such as the case of Mr. Bissonnette, where all murders were committed at the same time, but he was subject to only one judgment, this decision would not apply to him. Could you comment on that? The answer I'll give you is that this does apply to Mr. Bissonnette. Whether it's a serial killer or a mass murderer, the goal in both cases is to kill as many people as possible. Regarding Bissonnette, when he went to the mosque, the first um, it was a rifle that he used first, a semi-automatic rifle. He easily could have killed 50 to 60 people with that. It would have been carried out in the same period of time. We're talking about two minutes. So whether it regards serial killers or mass murderers, this, is, this provision does apply, and the objective in both cases is to kill as many people as possible, and the sentence to be imposed must reflect that. I respectfully submit that to you, and I thank you for listening. May I, Chief Justice, ask one last question? Yes. The Court of Appeal raises the problem for the sentencing judge to know what the chances for a detainee to be rehabilitated after a given period of time. Given that after 25 years, the, the real the chances are just speculation, and after 50 years, it's even more difficult to know. So here, if you tell us that 50 years would be the just and appropriate sentence, at the time when a trial judge decides on the sentence, how can that judge uh, know? I'm thinking of the trial judge who will be dealing with this problem that you raised. He, the trial judge decides that 50 years is the just and appropriate sentence. But you're projecting so far into the future, how can you be sure? The appeal court criticized this. What do you have to say about it? Answer, 
It's true, it is difficult to carry that analysis. But at trial, experts spoke and they said it's difficult to evaluate risk past 25 years. However, the trial judge has an advantage. The trial judge has the uh, offender before him and is able to um, evaluate the situation. Alexandre Bissonnette was a university student of 30 years. C'est, uh, uh, it's someone who expressed remorse and pleaded guilty. And the trial judge has that offender in front of them. But yes, I do agree with you that it's difficult to project into the future and uh, to know for sure where the offender will be later. Thank you, Mr. Godin. The court will take its morning break of 20 minutes. Thank you. Please be seated. Mr. Demers. Chief Justice, Justices, I believe uh, first Canada will look at the question of the application of uh, Section 745.51. I think that your concerns require an assessment of the scope of Section 745.51, first for the uh, period of time as uh, Justice Cote raised, but also for the cases where it applies. For example, when do multiple murder charges um, attract 745.51? I think we can look at this and bring clarity to it and also to limit the use of the provision. I'll begin with section C in my argument rather than starting with A or B. So regarding the question of the time period, the English version of 745.51 does lead us to believe that one or, or other murderers this could lead us to believe that the decision was made before the provision was applied in the French version the past tense is also used but does not temporally specify where the first conviction is. Sections 2 and 3 of 745.51 do not shed any further light on this, except to uh, and 745.51 dates back to 2011. Now, 
when we have an accused to whom this must be applied already has a conviction of murder that would mean that the murderer that has no uh, has no um, criminal record who uses a bomb to kill over a hundred people could never be convicted of a cumulative sentence but another murderer that uh, committed murder 25 years ago who served the sentence who applied for parole and who was f released and then commits a second murder would potentially be subject to the cumulative aspect we agree that the effect of the mass murder is much greater but the objective here is to allow in appropriate cases to punish certain multiple murder cases would not be achieved question excuse me but you're talking about 745.51 but that same section refers to 745.21 and these were both passed at the same time and point 21 also uh, speaks in the past where we're trying to figure out what the eligibility uh, period for parole should be and in 745.21 we're talking about someone who's already been convicted of another murder convicted of murder oui, absolument. Uh, yes absolutely the wording used can lead us in a certain direction but we also must interpret the wording used in the spirit of what the legislator wanted so we've consulted uh, parliamentary debates and parliamentary debates are not limited to the application of the cumulative aspect to uh, serial killers excluding mass murderers the objective of the legislator was always to allow for the cumulative aspect when there is one uh, accused who is uh, found guilty of a subsequent murder no matter when the first murder was committed otherwise there would be a distinction between the two cases because we have this time difference if one murderer commits two murders at two different points in time they can be uh, subjected to the cumulative effect but another mass murderer who is extremely blameworthy would never be subjected to it unless they committed further murders later we're assuming that you have uh, adopted what I submitted to you given that when would the cumulative aspect apply I know you talked about uh, reintegration and rehabilitation that matter is important but it is also determinative we need to look at the legislative regime uh, in its totality and look at the consequences of imposing the cumulative aspect to understand in which cases it applies so to summarize it applies in cases where when sentencing happens there is no possibility of reintegration or rehabilitation it applies to the most the to crimes that fall among the most serious crimes and it's, it's difficult to what murder is already the most serious crime and it's already punished by the most severe sentence in the criminal code but among those cases 
there is a category of cases that is even more serious and that should attract even more serious punishment. And in those cases, denunciation always prevails over all other considerations. So, Chief Justice, I'm not submitting that uh, rehabilitation should be set aside. No, it remains at the heart of the sentencing process. It is only when the trial judge is convinced that the accused on whom they are imposing a sentence is not capable of rehabilitation, so it is not automatic, and also that uh, denunciation objectives must prevail over the others, which Parliament can do, as you concluded in Friesen. And in that case, the cumulative aspect can be applied, but it cannot be applied any which way. There must be guidelines, legislative guidelines. The text in 745.51 itself gives us three criteria, the character of the offender, the uh, nature of the crime, and the circumstances surrounding its commission. Question. Given the argument that it's uh, in the nature itself, in the wording of this uh, provision, this is how we reach the conclusion that it does uh, breach Section 12. Answer. Quite the contrary. Imposing the uh, sentence goes against Section 12 by the judge. Question. Let's suppose that this provision breaches Section 12 because, in theory, it could allow for the infliction of a cruel and unusual punishment. You say, if that's in the abstract, we need to wait for a judge to interpret the uh, provision in a disproportionate way before we debate the constitutionality of the provision. Is that what you are submitting? Answer, no, and we can discuss that now. Uh, what I'm saying is the discretion power belong, belongs to the trial judge. And we see this in Section 718. But the trial judge must also consider that uh, essentially the only way for the uh, accused to be released would be the royal prerogative of mercy. Excuse me for interrupting you again. When a judge dealing with a file has to decide on a sentence, how can they do so knowing when, that the person will not be able to be rehabilitated for 25 or 75 years? Answer, this is an exercise that you have validated. Up to date, and I have no quarrel with this, that if there's no possibility for parole for 25 years, the exercise is not any easier just because the eligibility period is uh, 25 years. It's just as difficult. It's extremely difficult. But when all circumstances, the offender's character, the criminal record, or no criminal record, or the no remorse, and the way that the crimes were perpetrated and 
given the evidence adduced, the possibility of rehabilitation in 25 or 50 years, if there is no uh, potential for rehabilitation, then the sentence can be just and appropriate and not breach Section 12. So I'm in Section B, but also the trial job, judge who holds the discretional power does not have to resort to it if they judge that the ineligibility, ineligibility period is too long that ineligibility period must be reduced but then the sentence even if the sentence would not be serious enough question so it, if the the difference with your example is that in the current state the judge has no discretion there's no choice. Uh, it's only a life imprisonment with 25 years of ineligibility automatically. And according your argument and according the text, there is a possibility of adding another 25 years. Here's my question. If you say that the possibility to add another 25 years is always available in the system, how can the trial judge know that in advance, that in 25 or 50 years, uh, that, that offender will not be able to be rehabilitated? Answer, or rather question. And before you answer, how could such a judgment be revised at appeal? Answer. When all indicators, for example, proof from experts, behavior of the offender, criminal record uh, from the beginning of the adult's life up until the date of the crime, uh, perpetration of crimes, the circumstances around the commission of the crime. I don't need to list these for you, but I'm sure you can imagine. When all of this lead us to believe that the individual before the sentencing judge is not possible of, is not able to be rehabilitated, but these are rare cases, and the mitigated effect will bring you back to the other argument I was making. Section 745.51 applies to a very limited group of accused. Those uh, who were called incorrigible in parliamentary debates. They're unsavable. Trial judges and sentencing judges who are capable of assessing the evidence and who do not have uh, the choice that they have for second-degree murder, and they're not able to foretell the future, and they cannot sentence for 10 or 15 years, or another ineligibility period, uh, well, they still do have the tools to proceed to this exercise. And in exceptional cases, which are the subject of 745.51, Parliament asks them then the following. Don't certain individuals at the time of sentencing have uh, the ability to be rehabilitated? And keep in mind, denunciation is so important, it must prevail over all other objectives. Question, I'll ask you to conclude. Certainly. In tab B of our condensed book, you have an example of the opposite, 
of very sordid murder cases, the trial judge concluded that in this case, uh, reaching the objectives was not uh, the case. Thank you. Chief Justice, uh, Justices, uh, may it please the court. Uh, the court below in its judgment at paragraph 101 acknowledged that there is no clear support within Canadian jurisprudence for the proposition that section 12 of the charter prohibits parole ineligibility beyond 25 years. Nonetheless, the court concluded that extended parole ineligibility may be grossly disproportionate. In coming to that conclusion, the court largely relied on foreign jurisprudence. My submissions today focus on the foreign law that the court below relied on in concluding that parole ineligibility beyond 25 years may violate Section 12 of the Charter. My fundamental submission is that the court below misapprehended the relevant European human rights law on which it based its decision. Properly read, that European human rights jurisprudence permits extended periods of parole ineligibility so long as there is a review mechanism that can permit release in exceptional circumstances. And to be clear, when one's talking about what's going on in, in England and Europe, under European law, such a review mechanism can, is quite distinct from normal parole procedure, and such a review mechanism can be administered by the executive, apart, again, apart from normal parole administration. But before getting and, into the international instruments, didn't the Court of Appeal cite Lacasse and Chief Justice Wagner's comments at paragraph 4? Isn't that how the debate was framed? That uh, particular d decision, all what, what uh, Chief Justice Wagner said in that decision is that rehabilitation is an important factor in sentencing law. But it is, uh, you cannot take that submission in that case and convert it into uh, the proposition that extended periods of parole ineligibility are unconstitutional. Uh, Justice, Chief Justice Wagner did not say that. He did not imply it. And, and the bedrock of the court below in terms of coming its, to its conclusion was European law. And, um, it, and, and so I make my point that, uh, when, again, when you turn to European law and how it operates, that review mechanism that is permitted under European law is 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 and that is very similar and analogous in its operation to the royal prerogative of mercy in Canada, and um, and 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 accordingly to the extent that European jur jurisprudence may have persuasive value in assessing the scope of Section 12 in the Charter in the context of this appeal, it weighs in favor of the constitutionality of Section 745.51. The court below in its judgment at paragraph 105 cited and relied on uh, the, the a report called the 25th General Report of the European Committee for the Prevention of Torture. And that report very concisely summarized the judgment of the European uh, Court of Human Rights in the case of Vinter, from, that was a case from 2013. And, and that judgment in Vinter considered whether the administration of whole life sentences in England violates Article 3 of the European Convention of Human Rights. And Section 3, that prohibits inhu uh, inhuman uh, or degrading treatment or punishment. And, and by way of background, I note that although parole in England is not possible for what they call whole life prisoners, 
England nonetheless has a review mechanism that permits the release of prisoners on license for exceptional circumstances. And that review is conducted by the Secretary of State under a statutory authority. However, the court in Vincher understood that the discretion to release a prisoner under that statutory mechanism was restricted only to compassionate reasons such as poor health, the prisoner, he's about to die, and, and, and that circumstances going to the possible rehabilitation of the prisoner were immaterial. And, and uh, in, in, in coming to that conclusion, the court in Vinter relied on certain published materials that, that referred to the exercise of that re review mechanism. And, and those published materials really were focused on, on, on grounds uh, engaging uh, the idea of compassion. And, and the court in Vintner therefore held that Article 3 uh, um, did not permit that, that, that that review mechanism was not consistent with Article 3 of the Human Convention on Human Rights, and, and that what Article 3 demands is that there needs, needs to be available a scope of review to consider other relevant factors, including re rehabilitation, but, but more broadly, whether there whether when you're whether you're 25 or 30 years or 35 years into a sentence, whether there are legitimate penological reasons still existing for the continued detention of that prisoner, and 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 it was for that reason that the court in Vintner held that the British administration of whole life uh, sentences was contrary to Article Three, and 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 well, and, and it was respect, on, on that basis. With respect, sir, I'm sorry. With respect, I think your argument is a bit short. In as much as when we look at the Court of Appeals decision, there are only three or four paragraphs dealing with international law, whereas the, all the rest deal with what this court wrote in Lacasse, in Nur, all, all the Canadian jurisprudence. So the Court of Appeal, in my, in my opinion, speaking for myself, I think that only referred to the international um, law or international decisions only to support their initial decision based on Canadian law. Well, with, with respect, it would be my respectful submission that, that neither the criminal code nor the jurisprudence of this court has ever taken the, the principle of rehabilitation and turned it into a cardinal principle that trumps all others and that it must necessarily be given effect in every case. Um, I thought that's, section, I thought, I, honestly, I thought that that's what we wrote in Lacasse, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, Section 718.1 of the Criminal Code states that the fundamental principle of a sentence is that it be proportionate to the gravity of the offense and the, and the degree of responsibility of the offender. And it's my submission that under that section and the other cases that, that uh, Chief Justice just referred to, uh, rehabilitation is an important factor in sentencing, but it is, it is not a trump card and in an appropriate case, it will give way to the, to, the, to the need for denunciation. And with respect to the cases that fall under 745.51, we are dealing with a population of prisoners that, that have committed the most malevolent um, offenses uh, that are beyond what normal people will, will, will uh, be able to tolerate. This is a very small category of uh, population of offenders who have committed uh, the most atrocious, the worst kinds of crimes. And, and, and but, but so my, my submission here is that all murders and all murderers are not equally culpable. There is a hierarchy of murders and murderers and 745.51 is designed to give court discretion 
to to address the to address and properly sentence the worst of the worst and there is nothing in canadian jurisprudence that that prohibits the imposition of a sentence that extinguishes uh, effectively extinguishes the possibility of of uh, of, dis- of rehabilitation or giving effect to rehabilitation where the needs for denunciation are so acute and this is not a large in the in the world of uh, canadian criminal justice this is a very tiny number of cases and um and and and, and in my respectful submission parliament acted reasonably and folk it, it had uh, a reasonable basis to to address the that provision onto 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 those cases and those offenders how do we square this with the dangerous offender legislation when the court gives an indefinite sentence and yet its constitutionality as i understand it i may be wrong but depends on reviews at various points i mean i've lost you mr no no i can't hang on sorry about that Okay, you're back. Okay, I'm, I'm back. Thank, yeah, thank no, you. I mean, yeah, even with the most dangerous offenders that we sentenced to an indefinite period, um, many of whom will never see the light of day, we still have parole <coughs> uh, proceedings. How, how does this work? Uh, this is a distinct track of, of, of sentencing. Um, and and in particular, generally speaking, when you're talking about dangerous uh, offenders, they have not committed uh, the offense of murder. Otherwise, they would they would be in the sentencing stream of murder, and depending on the number of murders they committed, they'd be in on on track uh, to, to be sentenced in, in accordance with 745.51. Um, the dangerous offender uh, legislation focuses on uh, future danger. Uh, the, the provision under 745.51 focuses on the need for, uh, for there to be a denunciation of, of, of past conduct, in particular, uh, multiple murders. You so that, say, that's though, how just, I, I just take the follow through with that, with the murder. I thought when it came in, in the 25 years, um, the faint hope clause was of some importance in, in, in accepting that it was acceptable. <laughs> And of course, I think that's been taken away, hasn't it? It has. What, and, what and, has and been you're correct. That was cited as a as a factor when 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 this court did its uh, analysis of the constitutionality of uh, the the 25 year minimum for first degree murder, but um, um, and, but what we're left with in in Canada is is the royal prerogative of mercy, which was addressed. Well, did, didn't uh, we have that even then? We did, and 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 the 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 best uh, summary of the of the nature of that prerogative, of how it's used, when it's used, is can be found in the just in the, the decision of Justice Campbell in uh, Granada, um, uh, the um, Grant Granados Arana. Uh, Justice Campbell he exhaustively uh, tr- uh, summarizes the nature of the royal prerogative. Uh, he he explains how often it's been used in recent years, and and it continues to exist as a uh, meaningful safety valve 
in, in, in cases where at the time of sentencing, there was a legitimate penological uh, basis to impose a sentence. And in the case of 745.51, it may be that a 50-year sentence was appropriate at the outset, but uh, at any point uh, during the currency of such a sentence, there could be an application for royal prerogative of mercy. And uh, in, a, in, a, in a case where an injustice has come about for, for reasons that were uh, not predictable at the time of sentencing, there is a safety valve. And, and uh, that, was, uh, that safety valve has been uh, referred to by this honorable court in a number of cases. They're in the crowds, uh, the intervener's factum in this case. And um, thank you. And thank you. Um, Mika Renkin. Yes, good morning. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. In my time today, um, I'd like to expand on three points that I make in my factum. My first point concerns the relationship between Section 745.51 and the previous murder sentencing regime. And in my submission, Section 745.51 has to be considered against the backdrop of the pre-existing sentencing regime. And it has to be viewed as legislation meant to correct a shortcoming, at least as perceived by Parliament in the previous regime. And that shortcoming in the old scheme was that it didn't permit courts to impose sentences that reflected the inc increased gravity of cases involving multiple murders. And uh, I suppose in part that that's an attempt to answer your question, Chief Justice Wagner, what was missing under the previous regime? And... Under the previous regime, it seems as though the legislation was framed, if not expressly, but implicitly on the basis of cases involving single murders. And in the parliamentary debates related to the new legislation, 745.51, parliamentarians described the 1976 regime as giving multiple murders a kind of a discount or free pass. And while this language may seem rhetorical, or perhaps a bit unpalatable, there was, I suggest, a principled basis for the criticisms that were leveled against the old scheme. This court has held in cases like Arkell and Luxton and Paré that there's nothing impermissible or arbitrary about classifying murders as being more or less egregious and then attaching more or less serious penalties to them. Classifying murders by severity is in itself an expression of the fundamental principle of proportionality. And what I suggest about 745.51 is it's essentially a way of adding a new classification system for murder based on the number of victims. And that was something that was missing under but, the but if that But if that were the case, um, Mr. Rankin, wouldn't it then provide um, a scheme that actually corresponds to the number of murders? The trial judge is left with discretion. I mean, in, in, in this case... Um, the, the trial ju judge wasn't faced with a scheme that required uh, him to impose 150 years of parole ineligibility to reflect each murder. It was a scheme that gave him discretion. So, so, so I'm not sure if there's kind of a, an obvious correlation. There's not value being ascribed, for example, to each, to each murder. It's just simply well, if it's a multiple murder, you can go further, so long it's as, as it's in increments of 25. Well, there's a capacity, the opportunity, if I could put it that way, uh, of sentencing judges using the provision in order to give value to individual 
uh, number to, to individual victims. So it's true that the discretion is circums circumscribed. Parliament has, um, at least with respect to second to, to first degree murder, has uh, only permitted 25 year blocks. But it still, in my submission, gives judges the opportunity to uh, to give meaningful effect uh, to, uh, well, how, to what the does, What of does that mean, meaningful effect? I mean, how does one give meaningful effect to the loss of six lives? I mean, so are we saying that the first life is worth 25 years and the other five are worth five years? I mean, what? Well, I'm not. I'm not sure that I can answer yeah. what amount of time would give meaningful effect, but I can say that under the pre-existing regime that there was no possibility of giving any effect to the number of victims. And that was clearly the issue from the per perspective of Parliament. It may be that the means that's chosen through Section 745.51 is not the most effective means at achieving that objective of giving value to each and individual victim, but it is a means that is capable of doing that. And so in my, in my submission, there is a basis, there is a justification, even if the way in which it's implemented is imperfect. May I just ask this question, though? When Parliament was thinking about how it wanted to cope with the multiple murder situation, um, it didn't, um, it didn't uh, give consecutive life sentences. It just changed parole ineligibility. And it seems to me that there's a fundamental philosophical reason is life is life. I mean, the accused person is sentenced to a life uh, imprisonment. And so what do we take from that in terms of um, the, the method in which this comes forward of, of being based in parole ineligibility? Well, it, it's of course impossible um, to impose multiple life sentences, at least in, in Canada. And um, there is jurisprudence that has that's said in the past uh, of courts that it's not possible to combine other sentences with a sentence of life, uh, of life imprisonment. I think in the context of murder, uh, parole ineligibility, going back to cases like Shropshire, has always been the means that has been used by courts and by parliament through, through the criminal code to allow sentencing judges to signal the need for denunciation and deterrence with respect to, uh, to the commission of what is the worst crime in Canadian law. And it, it's, I think, self-evident that parole ineligibility is meant to subordinate rehabilitation. In fact, that's its primary purpose in certain respects. And so uh, it is the mechanism that allows, um, allows that signal, particularly of the more uh, retributive aims of, of sentencing to be conveyed uh, in the context of the sentencing process. This brings me to uh, my second point, and that relates to the Court of Appeals conclusion that parole and eligibility periods exceeding 25 years are inherently unacceptable. And we agree uh, with what the Court of Appeal had to say with respect to there being a two-track system in Canada uh, under Section 12, one involving methods and the other uh, involving uh, severity. And so we also agree with the the uh, scholarship, the analysis that's offered by Professor uh, Lisa Kerr and Ben Berger in that regard. But where we depart from the Court of Appeals and it's finding that Section 745.51 should be analyzed on the methods track, the proper focus 
uh, is on the severity track in this case. Whipping, torture, castration are all impermissible methods of punishment. These methods can't be saved by combining them with judicial discretion. And for example, in this case, in, in Smith, this court held that the lash was unacceptable regardless of the number of lashes that would be imposed. But that's not true of imprisonment. Imprisonment is an acceptable form of punishment. It may become unacceptable depending on the length of sentence. And ultimately, we submit that the real root of the Court, Appeal, Court of Appeals complaint in this case was that Section 745.51 uh, resulted or could result in the imposition of excessively lengthy sentences. And for that reason, it should be uh, evaluated on the ordinary gross disproportionality standard, although, uh, as I'll come to in a moment, discretion ultimately stands in the way of any finding of, of uh, unconstitutionality. So uh, turning to that point on discretion, in my submission, the presence of judicial discretion in Section 745.51 is a complete answer to both the Section 7 and Section 12 claims. So does, that, appeal, does that mean that your answer to the question that I posed earlier is that it is possible uh, to impose a sentence of life imprisonment effectively without without parole um, because because yes. the, the, without infringing section 12 yes okay all right that that is my position right. that it's possible to exercise the discretion conferred under 745.51 in cases where it will not violate section 12 and and further that life imprisonment without the possibility of parole is not necessarily a violation of Section 12. And Maitre Perret, in his submissions, referred, to, for example, to individuals who might be in their, in their late 70s or in their 70s who are subject, for example, to a 25-year parole ineligibility period, which in the result is going to lead yeah, to Yeah, but, but this isn't the same as kind of a lifespan question. This is, this is more just, you know, by its nature. Yes. Um, okay. Do you in understand? Do you understand the distinction? I mean, I, I do understand yeah. the distinction. Isn't, isn't, and, and in my in my submission, even for individuals who are far younger, that that is the, it, the there are going to be certain examples of multiple murders, multiple first degree murders that are so heinous that a sentence of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole is a permissible sentence. Under but the law doesn't parole. say that, right? The law doesn't say that that's the option for the judge. The law says by these blocks of 25 years, a judge is going to render. No, no, just, just let me finish because I'm referring to a paragraph, paragraph 93 in the judgment of the Court of Appeal where it says, the court says, by rendering a judgment in blocks of 25 years, the judgment itself is absurd and brings the administration of justice into disrepute. So it's not as if the Parliament provided the option you're speaking to. It provided this different option, which the Court of Appeals says is creates the absurdity. Uh, is, are you saying it by, by Parliament saying a 300-year ineligibility period is as if it was entitling a judge to say what's your what's your point it's saying something uh, well, that the I'm law not suggesting say. that a 300 year 
uh, eligibility period would be permissible or that it's permissible under this legislation to impose a sentence for uh, performative reasons uh, that uh, impose a sentence that's going to far exceed the lifespan of an ordinary individual. In situations where it would be absurd to impose, for example, a, a 100 or 150 year sentence, I submit that, uh, that a judge ought not to, should not. So an absurd sentence is one that is not permissible under this legislation. And if a judge were to do it, I would expect that it would be varied uh, on appeal. And where the increments result in a situation where the sentence would be grossly disproportionate or absurd or irrational, then a sentencing judge has to default to the lower sentence. Right. It really, so comes, it really comes down to whether this can be exercised at all without infringing Section 12. And my submission is it can be, uh, and just, consequently. Right, but it comes down to that. Isn't there a big difference between a period of parole and ineligibility for a 75-year-old versus somebody in their 20s, though? Because um, it's, it doesn't uh, affront the principle of rehabilitation, which by its nature takes time, right? It takes time. Uh, a 75-year-old uh, who gets a period of parole ineligibility of 25 years, that doesn't do an affront to the principle of rehabilitation. It's that they are old when they are sentenced and they don't have the time to re for rehabilitated, where it's very different. So the example of uh, the, the elderly person who commits murder seems to me to be totally different and doesn't actually affront the principle of uh, rehabilitation. It merely recognizes that rehabilitation takes time. That isn't a constitutional problem. That's just a recognition that somebody's old. Well, if I may, I see my time is out, but if yeah. I may very briefly Please respond do so. to that. Yeah. Uh, just two parts. One, of course, my submission is that the principle of rehabilitation is not a principle of fundamental justice. It can be subordinated by decision uh, by decisions of parliament. The other answer to that is a, a sentencing judge is not required to impose this. It's not an automatic consecutive sentence. And if indeed rehabilitation is a concern that ought to take uh, take on more importance than a sentencing judge won't impose a consecutive sentence. And if you look at the jurisprudence from British Columbia that I've canvassed in my factum, you'll see that it's only been applied one time in this jurisdiction in recognition of the discretion that judges have to avoid that type of consequence. Thank you very much. Mr. Denson. Thank you, Chief. Hear you. I'm sorry. Uh, I thought I hit that. Um, I wish to address uh, two specific uh, errors made by the Quebec Court of Appeal. The first error relates to the appropriate remedy in the event that this court agrees with the Quebec Court of Appeal on the constitutional issues. And the second error relates to the Court of Appeal's failure to respect Parliament's choice to leave the issue of consecutive periods of parole and eligibility to the discretion of the sentencing judge rather than uh, the parole board. With respect to the first error, it is simply wrong uh, to say that the dominant and most important characteristic of 745.51 was uh, to institute a mandatory mathematical solution uh, by stacking periods of parole and eligibility in segments of 25 years. Neither section 74521 nor 74551 makes any reference to this mandatory stacking, nor does the title of the act. 
The dominant and most important characteristic of 745.51 is to allow sentencing judges to impose parole and eligibility periods that are proportionate to the gravity of the offense involving multiple, multiple murderers, thereby correcting uh, a serious defect in the previous legislative regime that gave offenders a free pass insofar as parole and eligibility for each subsequent murder. Parliament was well within its constitutional jurisdiction to place a high premium on denunciation and deterrence that reflected the high value Canadians place on human life and the extreme moral blameworthy of these particular offenders. Parliament had every right to amend this law to reflect an essential truth, namely that an offender convicted of multiple murders was no longer going to be on an equal footing as an offender who committed a single murder. Only this way could the sentencing judge uh, are able to ensure a sentence that they impose is proportionate, fit, and in the public interest. So clearly, if Parliament was faced with a choice be between not having 745.1 at all, or maintaining it by adding words such as maybe increased up to 25 years or an additional amount, uh, Parliament clearly would have chosen the latter as it reflects uh, and achieves the dominant objective of the legislation. With respect to the second error, Parliament made a very conscious uh, decision and for very good reasons to amend the criminal code to give uh, the sentencing judges this discretion uh, rather than amend the Corrections and Conditional Release Act or leave this discretion to the exclusive jurisdiction of the parole board. Within co constitutional boundaries, of course, this is not a legislative choice that the courts ought to interfere with, but that is precisely what the courts did in paragraph, the Quebec Court of Appeal did in paragraph 69 uh, and uh, section 110, uh, paragraph 110 of its decision, when it stated that 745.51 seeks to prevent the parole board from exercising its discretionary power to release offenders on parole, uh, when it did no such thing and that trial judges are not in a position to know the likelihood of whether an offender convicted of multiple murders will be rehabilitated in uh, 25 years, which has been, questions have been raised by the, by the court already. This exposes in my submission three misconceptions. First, the parole board is not a power unto itself. It derives its power exclusively from parliament and through the CCRA. The very same parliament has chosen to give this discretion to sentencing judges, not to the parole board. The second misconception is the incorrect assumption that rehabilitation, while important, is the only, let alone the dominant or prevailing principle for offenders convicted of multiple murders. This is clearly inconsistent with the sentencing principles stated in the code, which for these particular offenders prioritizes principles of denunciation, deterrence, and moral blameworthiness. Finally, and thirdly, this is why uh, we included in our factum excerpts from then Associate Chief Justice Lesage in the Bernardo proceedings and Justice Watt in, in the Gale proceedings. Taking into account all governing sentencing principles, sentencing judges are far better positioned than the non-lawyer members of the parole board to ensure a proportionate and fit sentence. It is the parole board's role to carry out the sentence, not to determine it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Maître Mathieu Saint-Germain. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Good morning, Justices. On behalf of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, we'd like to focus our submissions on the true value of this provision as we see it from a police perspective and with a particular focus on public safety and the protection of society. Now, 
as we know, and as this court has recognized in its jurisprudence dating back to Shropshire, essentially, parole and eligibility forms an integral part of the sentence. And that's worth repeating. It's part of the punishment. It is Parliament's legitimate pursuit towards the objectives of denunciation and deterrence of serious crime. And it is paramount in cases of serious criminality, such as multiple murder, the worst crime in our Canadian system, and especially in the case at bar with the horrific facts as we know them. Now, when it comes to sentencing uh, first-degree multiple murder, as we know, the ability for courts to increase such periods is essentially the only statutory tool available to sentencing judges, allowing them to actually craft a sentence that is responsive to the circumstances of the offense, namely based on the gravity of the offense and the offender's degree of responsibility. Well, I might agree, now, if, it, I might agree if they weren't in 25-year increments. It's rather, well, crude, again, it's rather a crude tool. Well, Justice, uh, Justice Brown, I, I appreciate the, uh, this point, but I think at the end of the day, in my respectful submission, this really boils down to what was discussed earlier this morning in terms of the full-blown discretion that's afforded by this section. This is not just a, a safety valve in our respectful submission or, or some type of constitutional residual exemption. Um, to the Crown's point, if a sentencing judge finds uh, themselves in a situation where 25 is too low and 50 years is too high, then pursuant to proper judicial exercise of discretion, uh, that judge is expected to err on the side of 25 years. And on that basis, and, and for reasons articulated by the Crown, this saves this section from the constitutional defect. But I, I, I do appreciate that, um, that, that point. Uh, but at the end of the day, for the, for the reasons that the Crown uh, quite ably argued this morning, uh, we do not see this exercise as constitutionally offensive. In fact, it seems to be perfectly in keeping with proportionality, which as we know is the overarching uh, fundamental principle in our sentencing regime. Now, in the spirit of public safety, if I, uh, if I can take a, a brief moment uh, to address the concept of general deterrence as it relates to the operation of Section 0.51 in the context of multiple murder. And the reason I'd like to do this is because, as we know, to this day, there's been some uh, lower courts that have made comments uh, expressing some doubt or skepticism as to the true uh, concrete effectiveness of general deterrence when it comes to multiple murder. And the skepticism, as we also know, comes almost 30 years after this court's ruling in Shropshire. The CACP takes the view that general deterrence remains an animated principle in the sentencing equation. This court has confirmed such in Shropshire, and we, so, we see no reason why the rationale of the court in Shropshire should not be equally applicable with the impugned uh, provision. At the end of the day, uh, we believe that Justice Campbell said it best in Granados Arana, um, which we find at tab three of our condensed books, paragraph 63 of the ruling, where Justice Campbell essentially recognizes the concrete role that courts must play in discouraging the commission of uh, multiple murder. So we would respectfully invite the court to clarify, depending on where this ruling ends up on the constitutionally front, to clarify and um, essentially dispel this misconception that courts can start revisiting the wisdom of parliament and crafting proper sentencing policy. And at the end of the day, as um, the Court of Appeal uh, reiterated and confirmed in, in Garland, the majority, if the general deterrence, however it can be argued in terms of its true exact utility, ends up saving a life or has the potential of saving lives, this, in our uh, humble opinion, justifies parliament's enactment, subject, of course, to um, constitutional scrutiny. 
Now, I realize but that can my... Can I just ask you a question here? In terms of Parliament's um, decision uh, to, to prioritize deterrence and denunciation, what Parliament has done here is effectively given a mandatory minimum sentence uh, to, to first-degree murder, and it's the most severe penalty known to law. Uh, why isn't that sufficient uh, to convey the, uh, the objectives of Parliament? Thank you for the question, Justice Martin. I think um, it, it boils down to a focus on denunciation and deterrence. Uh, deterrence and the fact, or, or falling back on the learnings of, uh, of this court in Shropshire, essentially an escalation in punishment given the fact that these parole ineligibility periods form an integral part of the sentence. As far as denunciation goes, uh, again, I think Garland is, uh, is quite instructive as well as Clause from the Court of Appeal of Alberta, uh, recognizing that essentially the sentencing process is a reflection of the public's condemnation of serious crime and carries with it a symbolic and declaratory value. Right, it's talking about symbols and declaration and garland. But I, I mean, does the Canadian public really need to understand that everybody appreciates that a multiple murder is, is a, a terrible thing and that taking six lives is far worse than taking five or four? Or, I mean, um, what is the symbol? What is the declaration? Uh, beyond uh, what's necessary to do that when we have consistently in our jurisprudence and in our law recognizes that life is precious and every life is precious. Yes, of course, Justice Martin. Um, and I think this also goes back to uh, the Chief Justice's comments in terms of, well, isn't life imprisonment enough as a sentence? Um, and, and Justice Martin, you asked what, what possible aim do we have here uh, if not symbolic? Well, I, I think this was also part of the intent of Parliament. Um, and it, it, again, uh, it, it, it's confirmed in Garland that the sentencing process is not exclusively a utilitarian process. So it has a symbolic value. And uh, otherwise, we're back in the alternative of essentially a, devalua a symbolic devaluation of the victim's lives, which is unacceptable in a system of values, in my respectful submission. Right. And I see my time is up. Yep. Thank, Thank you very, very much. much. Respectfully submitted. Thank you. Miss um, uh, Omer. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. We represent the National Council of Canadian Muslims. This case requires us to consider how do we as a society, but more importantly, how, do, how should courts respond to the most egregious and horrifying of crimes, those of hate-motivated mass murder perpetuated against an identifiable group or community. What sentence properly reflects the gravity of the crime of mass murder, considering the need for denunciation, deterrence, and society's total repudiation of such odious offenses? It is so important for this court to get the balance right. The community most directly affected by this crime, the Muslims of Quebec City, as well as Muslims across this country, are particularly interested in observing how the court's approach to sentencing in a crime like this will account for the fundamental interests of Canadian Muslims to worship without fear. It is important that the avoidance of cruel and unusual punishment does not result in a sentence, quote unquote, discount for those who commit multiple murders, especially where the crime targets an identifiable or vulnerable group. A sentence of life imprisonment without parole for 25 years creates such a sentence discount and places a single murderer and a mass murderer on an equal footing. The NCCM takes no position on the constitutionality of section 745.51. We do submit the following po points for the court's consideration. 
First, the provision's constitutionality under Section 12 should not be considered in isolation from the facts in this case. Canadian Muslims have a profound concern about the interplay between justice and incarceration and the need to carefully strike the correct balance. So courts must consider the totality of the circumstances, the relevant sentencing objectives and principles when assessing gross proportionality for the purposes of Section 12. The wider context of the issues in this case is crucially important. This court is well aware that crimes motivated by hate, bias, or prejudice, particularly against marginalized or vulnerable groups, have a tremendous impact on victims, their families, their larger community, and society as a whole. Such offenses terrorize the targeted group, stripping them of their sense of security, belonging, and self-worth. In Paramount v. Johnston, the Ontario Superior Court, Court noted a rise in hate crimes in 2017 against Muslim, Jewish, and Black people. So at a time when society is experiencing an increase in violent hate-motivated crimes against marginalized groups, the principles of deterrence and denunciation must be prioritized and play a more important role in the sentencing of offenders who commit mass murders in such contexts. The use of denunciation and deterrence prevents, protects identifiable, uh, identifiable vulnerable communities from crimes motivated by hate. While re rehabilitation should not be entirely dismissed, we agree it must also not be necessarily be the predominant concern in such cases. Courts have a duty to actively discourage the commission of mass murder, especially those motivated by hate or prejudice based on religion, race, or any other protected characteristic. Our second point is that while judges must not impose sentences that are excessive, sentences that are too lenient and fail to be proportioned to the interests at stake in the case also risk calling into question the credibility of our justice system. A sentence for mass murder, which stacks one or more periods of parole ineligibility, is severe, but that is not inconsistent with Canadian sentencing principles. Harsher sentences are imposed for more serious offences. Mass murder, motivated and inspired by hatred of an identifiable group, is arguably one of the most serious offences a person can be convicted of. Such sentences require a principled sentence that is both fitting and denounces the moral depravity characterizing such crimes. This court may wish to review um, the analysis in the Queen v. Tarrant, which dealt with the Christchurch massacre. The facts in Tarrant are directly on point to this case as the perpetrator was motivated by an irrational hatred, resulting in the mass murder of Muslims at prayer to mosques. In Judge Mander's ruling, the notion of grossly disproportionate punishments was the key to reconciling the tension between a sentence of life imprisonment without parole and the need to avoid a disproportionately severe punishment. He noted that such a sentence, with, such a life sentence without parole, might be necessary to satisfy the societal requirements for accountability, denunciation, and deterrence, setting examples of mass of murders with, involving terrorism extraordinary sadism or cruelty and mass murder. Just to conclude, absent a discretionary provision that extends periods of parole ineligibility for those who commit multiple murders, offenders may elect to kill as many people as possible, knowing they're not going to receive a sentence that is any different than if they had committed only a single murder. Thank you. Thank you very much. Maître Boulac. Les à la cour. Please, the court. One theme will be discussed: interlegality. That is the use of 
international normativity in the interpretation of the Canadian Charter. In the appeal judgment, reference is made to two things in this regard. International human rights law in paragraph 105 and also to the international criminal law, paragraph 106. We resort is to the Rome Treaty, paragraph 3 of section 110. I'll come back to that. But the use of these uh, elements referred to as relevant and persuasive by the Court of Appeal are problematic, and that's the initial objective of our intervention today, to say that such exercises where mention is made to international law in an approximative manner doesn't, is not consistent with the recent jurisprudence of this court. Since the Quebec Inc. ruling in 2020, the analysis table on the matter has become rigorous. The first strength in Quebec Inc. is that the standards of international law are not obligatory. When we say something is persuasive or relevant, it means at the discretion of the court. In other words, there are two specifications that were formulated by the majority in Quebec Inc. referring to the nature of the international sources, whether they are binding or not, or to know whether the instrument are before or after the legislation. These can be seen in the implementation of the international human rights law, but I will not address them here. Met Milan Hutrick has already done so for the Attorney General of Ontario, paragraphs 7 and 18. I'll rather use my time to talk about the international criminal law. Here again, not only reference made to the Rome Treaty is approximate, but is flawed. Looking at the process, there's a problem when reference is made to the Rome Statutes as if the treaty had not been transformed into domestic law. But the Rome Treaty, in its implementing decree, the law on international, the Crimes Against Humanity and War Crimes Act adopted by the federal government in 2000, we understand that even for these international laws, the most severe crimes like genocide, the maximum is 25-year period for a life sentence, and after that, the sentence is re-examined. But this comparison is deceiving. It's not the same thing as parole. When we look at the international criminal law, the Court of Appeal underlines this itself when it writes in paragraph 68 that parole neither ends nor modifies the sentence. We shouldn't compare oranges and apples. The logic is in 745.51, including the, validity, the constitutional validity. The idea of parole, this is not a regime that requires re-examination of sentences. Secondly, the seductive comparison 25-year maximum, even for international crimes, and then a review. Well, this seems to be a bad analogy that runs contrary to the intention of the legislator. Let me explain myself. First of all, to avoid the methodological shortcuts contrary to the appeal court, we should refer not to the Rome Treaty, but to its implementing decree. 
the federal government made a clear choice. It refused to make applicable in internal law section 110 of the Rome Treaty, paragraph 10. It rather decided to refer to the regular regime according to the criminal code. So it's parole system, which includes our, the provision in 745.51. So if you were to go along with the Court of Appeal, paragraph 106, we will be using a Rome Treaty which was willingly ignored by the federal legislator. Sang 103 cannot be relevant and persuasive within the framework of the charter evaluation because the federal go uh, government chose not to do so. Here, the court should come up with a correction when we look at interlegality as has been done in the past. That is the primary objective of our submission today. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. The court will take a 20-minute break. Cool. The court. Ah, bonjour. Good day once again. Please be seated. Mr. Charles-Olivier Gosselin, Chief Justice, Justices, good day. The position of the respondent in this case on the constitutional matter, first of all, is that Section 745.51 has uh, exaggerated uh, provisions because it's contrary to all cases, the proportionality of the sentence and reintegration. This uh, brings disrepute to the administration of justice and goes against uh, the fundamental principle of our criminal justice system, creating uh, dehumanizing effects on the offenders. The regime for murder sentences was the same from 76 to 97 where the legislator, to respond to the issue of m multiple murderers, abolished uh, the previous provisions. So since uh, 1997, multiple murderers as well as uh, murderers who commit one murder were treated differently, were not treated the same way. So already there was a distinction between multiple murderers and simple murderers looking at the penalties provided for in Can under Canadian law. So there's no longer any review mechanism 
to adapt to the individual characteristics, to use uh, Justice Lamar's words when he talked about judicial review for no murderer. This discretion, this review is part of uh, the punishment, particularly since the trial judge, when convicting uh, the offender, had the right to review already in our system in a criminal uh, and carceral system, there are offenders and murderers who have long sentences. And these long sentences for a long time have been subject to analysis and reports, particularly when it comes to their physical health, psychological health, the high level of suicides, the reduced expectancy, and the despair caused by sentences that deprive them of any hope of reintegration. Life sentence without possibility of parole in many cases compromise the objective of reintegration and is amongst the highest in the Western world. And when it was determined, not arbitrarily, but when there was a compromise when it comes to the 25-year period and the minimal period, the following was said concerning the quality of the 25-year ineligibility period. That is why the Court of Appeal currently, in our opinion, identified the 25-year period of ineligibility by tying it to the offender who is rehabilitated. I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Goslem. What would you say to the argument by your colleagues who say that the, it's up to the judge to come up with the sentence. It's the judge who should decide and not the parole board. So it's up to parliament to rule to put everything in the hands of the judge or to come up with sentences who, which are not intended to please everyone. So what would you say to that? When, well, this is constant case law in Canadian sentencing. All principles are taken into account by the trial judge. If discretion is granted to the trial judge to grant a certain sentence, maybe a minimum 20 sentence, a parole ineligibility of 25 years. The discretion the trial judge is to give an ineligibility period of 50 years, including for all offenders, even for those that cannot be rehabilitated. Our position is that we cannot determine 50 years in advance that someone will not be rehabilitated. Question. So should we take it that social reintegration should in all cases prevail over dissuasion, deterrence, and denunciation for crimes like the one at Barnow? Answer. No, because deterrence and dissuasion have already been met for a life sentence without possibility of parole and reintegration is already secondary for such sentences. So when we go even further, and there's the cumulative periods of 25 years. Question, 
Are you getting to another dimension where we should talk about vengeance more than denunciation? Answer. Denunciation, the problem with that, when looking at vengeance, is the terms used by Justice Lamey in MCA. I don't want to put any intentions that people are requesting vengeance during sentencing, but the idea of justice is not included in extreme denunciation. The objective of denunciation is that its effect is met. The effect of denouncing a crime with four months imprisonment, will that necessarily denounce the crime more than a two-month uh, sentence? To express such denunciation, well, the prior judge was criticized in a factum for attaching denunciation to the fact that a society may be shocked be considering the crime committed. But we are not talking about excessive denunciation anymore. But we are talking about an extreme sentence that goes against the fundamental principles of our justice system. Reintegration will not be a priority in the case of a life sentence, nor will it be so for dangerous offenders. Even in cases where there is evidence beyond all reasonable doubt, a dangerous offender who committed a serious crime, maybe not murder, but a very serious crime, where it is said, and let me use uh, La Forest's uh, terms in Lyons, any penological objective should not trump the others. So there should be a balance. There should always be a place for rehabilitation, even when there is evidence beyond all reasonable doubt that the person cannot be rehabilitated, that a person would likely commit the, the death of someone else if re released. Question, what is the place of constitutionality if discretion is given to the judge to exceed the 25-year period, but nothing more, no segments of three periods, do you feel that discretion should be given to the judge to go to exceed that uh, period? And if that were so, it would be unconstitutional? Answer, the problem with this situation is not, that is not the case before us, before you today. Our position is that the 25 ineligibility period is already su sufficient. It could be vulnerable in some situations, considering the abolition of judicial review. This is like the remedy that was proposed by the first judge. Beyond 25 years, with all the problems that are caused for the offender in detention, exceeding that period will lead us to a situation where all possibility of reintegration will be squashed. So if we say there's really no maximum, it will only depend on the discretion of the judge. This could give room 
to a case where a young delinquent, maybe 22 years of age, with a longer life expectancy, well, we will be able to allow that person 38 years, given that his age would give him 60 years when at the end, and there's a possibility of reintegration. So what we're saying is that this is not certain, considering things that could happen. If the person goes through all the programs, for periods that exceed 25 years, that it will be difficult to determine a limit because we need evidence and facts. We will find ourselves surely with a situation where it's impossible for the person to be reintegrated. A 22-year-old person who, goes, who is detained, detained without any possibility of reintegration for 35 years, knowing that the prison system will not prioritize that person when that person is in a prison, considering that there's a prioritization when considering paroles. And so for that person, it will be 35 years. So when will that person receive assistance to prepare for reintegration if released, still under supervision. Where is the line? It's very difficult to draw that line. For now, there was a traditional historic consensus at 25 years. And this position is uh, supported by international law. Could the lawmaker review or carry out studies with reports and experts to determine under what circumstances we could exceed 25 years, what criteria could be used, how those sentences could be managed. What we are submitting is that right now we are not in a position to manage those sentences. Question, Mr. Goslan, we understand your position in the factum. What you're saying is that by its nature, the penalty provided for by the legislator is cruel and unusual. I'm trying to understand what that means by its nature. When we do know that in Smith, for example, when Justice, Judge Lamet talks about the nature of the punishment, he talks about the lash, he talks about corporal punishment, which from the point of view of nature is different from the case at bar. So, what do you mean when you talk about the nature of the punishment? In our case, the nature of the punishment is certainly not a punishment that we could qualify as corporal punishment or by whipping or the death sentence. We're talking about liberty, which is a fundamental right. In our view, where it becomes unconstitutional is that each time that this punishment, we could be tempted to say 50 years, that's what the Crown is asking for, before parole eligibility. In our view, that's still grossly disproportionate. And Judge Lemaire found that a cruel punishment is one that is always grossly disproportionate. And that was the remark made about corporal punishment. 
So in our view, we can use the same analytical framework. So that means that a 50-year or more ineligibility period will always be grossly disproportionate. And how do we determine the proportionality of the sentence? Well, in Smith, we were wondering how to deter crime in society and references made to rehabilitation. So, a sentence that excludes all possibility of rehabilitation would not be applicable in Canadian law, regardless of the offender. So, a sentence with no possibility for parole would be unconstitutional by nature because it, was always, it will always be grossly disproportionate to what is fit to uh, dissuade, denounce, and protect society. Now, on discretion, we could use the same argument to justify the death penalty. That is to say that if a, a death sentence were uh, mandatory, the judge could then uh, decide to enforce it or not. But if the death sentence was not mandatory and there was discretion, then it could be applied only when appropriate, for example, because the offender is incorrigible and has committed heinous crimes. What we're suggesting is that this uh, turns us back on the offender and the objective is to uh, have the offender be forgotten in prison and that Mr. Gosselin, I have a question for you, and I want to understand your position. So as soon as the judge has a discretion to exceed the 25-year period, and through its nature, to use your words and the Court of Appeals note, words, is it cruel and unusual? Answer. No matter what the length is, We're not able to go into that today. The Court of Appeal mentions rehabilitation. So for rehabilitation, so when there is no access to parole, in our opinion, the penological objective of a Canadian law is not uh, met. If the period exceeds 25 years, but for some reason there is a revision to make sure that the penological objectives are met. Perhaps that, that ec an extra 25-year period would be appropriate in that case. But the legislator must hold on to this possibility for the uh, rehabilitated offender to have a real access to uh, conditional release after having served at 25 years. Earlier we also discussed something about uh, reintegration into society, about the uh, comparison between the Canadian criminal system and in some jurisdictions there are, is still corporal punishment that is inflicted, and a life sentence with no uh, parole eligibility or revision, 
or the death penalty. So where does Canadian society fall? And I will uh, draw your attention to sec uh, paragraph 52 of Gladue, which says that Canada is a world leader when it comes to progressive uh, policy and human rights. And in Lacasse and in Boudreau regarding the importance of reintegration into society and that role in the foundation of our judicial system also draw from Canadian values including social equity. The impugned provision today limits the uh, trial judges severely. So it is not true discretion that could save the provision. We submit that in any case it is grossly disproportionate. The inherent value of a human cannot be tied to one sole source. It is delusional to think that after having spent 50 years of one's life in a prison that it would be possible to rehabilitate into society no matter what programs were followed. We can't turn our back on even our worst offenders. We must, it must be possible to uh, re make reparations for our actions. And as it pertains to the nature, I would like to add a further point. Life sentence without eligibility for parole, such as in our case, or even 50 years without eligibility for parole for the respondent, uh, share essential characteristics with corporal punishment and with the death sentence. Section 745.51 provide for sentences that would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. This was brought up earlier and it is absurd to impose a sentence that can never be served. It's also ironic to see that the maximum sentence is 150 years in the case of this respondent, whereas the average life expectancy is 79 years. So there is a mathematical incompatibility between the life expectancy in Canada. The discretion given by 745 to 51 is deceptive. It is unbridled discretion and it can inflate, it has the risk of inflating criminal sentences. When we compare the possibility of having an ineligibility period of 50 years with a life sentence, when we compare that with the sentences for the worst, most dangerous offenders of having an ineligibility period of seven years after 
uh, revision, we can see that there is total disproportionality between these two mechanisms, but they are still uh, targeting the, essentially the same type of offender. And I refer to Lyons, who mentioned that. And the Court of Appeal also used that argument. Mr. Gosselin, I'll ask you the same question I asked to your colleagues this morning. Is it your belief, and I'm talking about the statutory analysis, uh, uh, mass murders versus serial killings, do you believe that the, uh, how do you believe that the provision applies here? answer. It would be seductive to tell you the arguments that you mentioned earlier, but we were wondering about this point because there was, even before Garland in Miller, we also saw legislative interpretation and we concluded the following. The French version, in our view, is clearer. Much more focus is put on the present tense than the past, which is uh, unlike the section B. So there is a paradox between the wording in 745.51, which you clearly identified. The criminal code must be interpreted as a whole to reach the goals and objectives of the legislator. We need to look at both provisions and both linguistic versions of 745.51 and 745B and interpret it in a way that's harmonious with the legislator's intent. In parliamentary debates, this was questioned when looking for the wording that would uh, cover the most murderers possible, including mass murderers and serial killers, but also recidivists. This is not a case of recidivism, but the legislator's intent was to cover serial killers who would, uh, who committed six murders, or in our case, uh, um, there were also six murders committed, but all at the same time. So if there is a murderer who at a later date is convicted for another murder, we have all of these possibilities. Earlier, you referenced Skolnick. We submit that Skolmik refers to the Koch ruling, which is a common law ruling. And as it pertains to the wording of the Attorney General of Canada, a lot of emphasis was placed by the Attorney General of Canada on all types of murderers 
So incorrigible murderers, to come back to this uh, point at, this, at the Court of Appeal, is not specified in the wording of 745.51 that this provision applies only to incorrigible offenders. It is very general. And this is one of the reasons why the Court of Appeal found that the scope was too broad. Now, on international law, in our view, in the Attorney General of Ontario's uh, words on Hutchinson uh, were mistaken. There is a significant distinction. The European Human Rights Court mentions that 25 years is an international consensus after its Vinter analysis. And it finds that a sentence without possibility for parole, with a real review, and in Vinter, as well as in the subsequent Hutchinson ruling, it is this an independent organization? Who makes this determination? And what we saw in Hutchinson is against um, royal prerogative, or contrary to the royal prerogative in Canada, when the Secretary of State uh, makes the analysis, the uh, Human Rights Convention Section 25 needs to be factored in, as well as the penological objectives. And if you look at the royal prerogative for mercy, reaching a penological objectives are, is not the result. Question. The royal prerogative is purely based on humanitarian factors, has nothing to do with penological objectives. The Attorney General this morning, as I mentioned, had a short argument because he mentioned that the foundation of the Quebec Court of Appeals ruling was based on international law and treaties, and the Court of Appeal mentions this only in two to three paragraphs, actually. So it was based on Canadian law. And to make, draw a parallel uh, with uh, the international law is a weak argument. Answer. To respond to what you just raised, in this case, we added page 51 of a Judge Fauteux saying, talking about the uh, roles played in the incarceration system. Regarding the provision, in our view, and especially in Section 7, the uh, Court of Appeal mentions it, when it comes to the proportionality of the regime, We submit that the appeal court's decision when it comes to determining the objective is correct when the uh, most deadly and incorrigible murders should never be uh, released. 
So it is clear that that was part of the uh, objective. We're also very concerned with the balance between perpetrators of criminal acts and uh, offenders of multiple murders. What we want to point out to you today, which we also mentioned earlier, is that mathematically, when we look at the life expectancy of an offender, is an impossible calculation to do, and we can't come up with a rational uh, system when we're trying to base it on life expectancy of uh, the offender. That is a very dark way to look at the correctional system. The provision can uh, be applied to absolutely all multiple murderers, so it goes too far. And after 25 years, if the offender is not rehabilitated, uh, is not capable of rehabilitation, the parole board would not rehabilitate them. By refusing the offender possibility for parole, it uh, skews the balance and it goes much too far much farther than necessary to ensure that there will not be a repeat, uh, unnecessary repeat victimization. It is an extreme and uh, it is extreme. And the legislator themselves or rather now very Quickly regarding the remedy for the uh, cumulative sentencing of 25 years was at the heart of the provision. There was even a request for uh, amendment which was uh, refused by the legislator. The court must respect the legislator's authority as legislator. Regarding parole ineligibility periods, without repeating the constitutional arguments, the trial judge's finding, which was the central finding, is that 50 years of parole ineligibility for the respondent was grossly Disproportionate, and that is what we submit to you, including because it would uh, violate the totality principle, which is a fundamental principle in the case of uh, discount sentencing. I have a question. Excuse me, Mr. Gosselin. Regarding the analysis process, what is your position? Do you agree that we should be able to analyze? analyze the constitutionality of this provision uh, in light of Section 12, and if we conclude that it does breach Section 12, that we wouldn't need to look at Section 7. Your colleagues seem to think that we should begin with uh, 7 and then go on to 12. Answer. 
I'm not necessarily sure I understand why the Attorney General submitted that framework. It seems clear in case law that we can conclude on validity, and if that's the case, we cannot continue assessment. We've added some comments in our factum to the effect that the problem is that if you stopped your analysis on 12, only on the matter of the fact that the penalty is unconstitutional by its nature, there are elements in the test, the seven tests as mentioned in the Quebec Code, which are which are important to address if ever the legislator wanted to propose another solution to the concern, particularly when it comes to identifying the offender, identifying the principles, how guidelines could be provided for the provisions depending on the sentencing principles under Canadian law in light of the values protected by the Charter. If you were to arrive at the conclusion that this offense 12, certainly according to the precedent of the court, you can stop the analysis. But the question under seven remains important for the reasons I've outlined. So, a 50-year parole ineligibility period will prevent them from benefit from certain mitigating factors that have been recognized by the trial judge. This will prevent taking into account the real perspectives of rehabilitation, contrary to other cases where uh, this specific evidence was provided regarding the psychological profile, the future prospects, and so on. Though though it's very risky or difficult to foresee 25 years in advance where the Mr. Bissonnette will be in the rehabilitation process, there is a real, it doesn't stop us from putting in the evidence that there's a real possibility of rehabilitation. Aggravating factors and mitigating factors are neutralized in this case. Subsequently, we submit that the trial judge analyzed the aggravating factors indi individually without taking specific considerations. The first judge, with all due respect, extrapolates from the gravity of the crime to wrongfully describe the respondent, mentioning that is a hateful fanatic who had strong hate and pathological insects, racist intolerance in his heart and in his mind. He had a sectarian spirit. Whereas, in light of all the evidence that was submitted to the trial judge, it's that evidence that he accepted. Mr. Gosling, let me come back to something. You may find that I have difficulty understanding you, but I really want to understand your position. Is it your position, and this brings to mind other is when I look at uh, section 12 and 7, is it your position that it's by its very nature unconstitutional for parliament, in itself unconstitutional for parliament, to increase 
the parole ineligibility period beyond 25 years, the mere fact of doing that, is it unconstitutional or what you are referring to as unconstitutional is the way parliament proceeded to arrive at a situation where the 25 years increases. And a parole ineligibility period of more than 25 is disproportionate. It goes contrary to our penological principles and is uh, unconstitutional and unusual. Conversely, the way the legislator does it or ruled in this case is an extreme solution, a cumulative sentence of 25 years for each of the murders, in our opinion, is disproportionate. Maybe let me come back clearly to the issue of the rehabilitated offender. Is a lawmaker who modifies the rules and must consider the possibility of rehabilitation after 25 years. Let me come back to the ineligibility period. If ever the court validates the constitutionality of 75551, with all due respect for the trial judge, we consider that the trial judge came up with objectives that could not be attained, that were unfit for the sentence by trying to express uh, the revolt, racism, and to add things with the intention of dissuading all offenders. This is not consistent with penological uh, objectives and runs contrary to mere functional validity of these objectives. I will refer you to the Canadian sentencing board that analyzed each of the objectives to determine its validity and the limits within which the sentence could help attain the various penological objectives. In our opinion, it is not consistent with the penological objective to go this far in imposing a sentence. The appellant doesn't show any error when it comes to mitigating uh, factors. Mr. Godin mentioned many mitigating factors that seem to be challenged in their factum regarding, regarding the regrets, for example, regret by the offender and his prospects of rehabilitation. So I take that as an admission that it has been filed in evidence that Mr. Bisson yeah. can be rehabilitated and has presented sincere regrets and that the trial judge was right in describing it that way. What we submit is that the respondent should enjoy the possibility of seeking parole after 25 years considering his personal characters and the mitigating factors we have on the file. Otherwise, it will be excessive and will offend or violate his uh, human dignity. This would complement the elements, well, concern, without regard to the personality of your client, the decision we render will cover all situations of multiple murders 
independent of the individual in question. Do you agree with that? Indeed, it's either constitutional or it is not. It's either constitutional or it is not for everyone. If it's inconstitutional, unconstitutional for one person, it should be so for everyone. It should be a precedent in this court. I see I still have some time left. I don't know if you have any other questions because we prepared different arguments if it was if allegations were made concerning the a shock to the conscience, extradition and so on. But since those issues were not raised this morning and was neither raised in the factums, we will not address them. You have seventeen minutes 52 seconds left, you are not obliged to take them. Of course, we are not obliged to, to use them. Justice Kote has a question for you, though. Well, allowing 17 minutes like that. Well, you are asking reconsideration of constitutionality, but you have demonstrated that the trial judge's decision that parole should be after 40 years alone. So, in law, should we try to see how we protect the constitutionality of a provision? And in the case of your client, protecting that, would it be to say that since the 40 years doesn't reach, attain the threshold of the first block, 50 years, the remedy would be to say that the eligibility period is 25 years, not because the provision is unconstitutional, but because the period determined by the trial judge in this case is clearly disproportionate, as you say. Answer. I will t take your question from two angles. First of all, when it comes to the remedy, in our opinion, the charter criteria should be considered when the court wants to fill or deal with an, an, in, an issue of invalidity the judicial authority should try to conserve constitutional provisions to the extent of their unconstitutional nature. What we submit is that the appeal court says it very clearly. Cumulative periods of 25 years were connected. That was the intention of the legislator. Even if it was a matter of the grounds, those were at the heart of the legislature because a number of fixed years, clearly fixed years, were being attached to each of the lives, the 25 years. If the court were tempted to review the remedy and confirm the trial judge, judge's remedy, we submit that this, the solution should be up to the lawmaker respecting dialogue between lawmakers and courts within the framework of constitutional dialogue. Question, the trial, the trial remedy is 40 years. If the judge uses his discretion in light of 745-51, well, maybe more than 25 years would be appropriate, but maybe not up to 50 years. So to say that it's going to be 25 years, would that be a fit remedy to avoid the provision being considered unconstitutional. Answer in our case. It is clear 
for example, if the trial judge had not looked into the new thesis and considered the 40-45 year sentence as being fit, if he had not done that analysis, he could have said it's 25 years, otherwise 50 years is exaggerated or excessive or disproportionate and violates the totality principle. He could have stopped there. But what we are submitting is that the 50 years will always lead to unconstitutional cases, irrespective of the offender question. You've already pleaded that by it, the very nature of the provision, it was unconstitutional. That's it. Answer. I will try to respond to Justice Kote. Maybe my answer was not clear. I may repeat my answer. If it's unconstitutional, if this discretion is applied and becomes unconstitutional in all cases, it should not be a provision that should survive. Thank you very much. Is that the end of your submissions? Will you allow me a short minute? You have 13 minutes and uh, 20 seconds left. We are not obliged to take all the minutes left just as we are not allowed to use up all the pages we are allowed in our fact factum. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Vani. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Chief Justices. I'm here to represent the ADM, which submitted that. 745.52 is unconstitutional in light of sections 12 of the Charter. We sent a condensed book in which you have a detailed plan for our arguments with sources provided as well. Since I'm not seeing the court, well, I'll continue. I'll, I'll focus on two specific issues for our arguments. First of all, as our colleague has just said, the ADM feels that we need to focus on the true um, impugned provision when analyzing its unconstitutionality. Initially, it, it appears that there is an addition of prison sentences for what seems to be a life sentence. This is not the case. When we look at the true impact. In almost all cases where the provision will be applied, its true impact will be the same for all offenders, irrespective of their age. All will receive a life sentence. It's no longer imprisonment. Yes. Implementation of the provision will change the nature of the penalty. That is the position supported by, uh, defended by the ADM. Those who defend the constitutionality of the, of the section have talked about the least severe form, 50 years of sentencing. They use this case to support the fact that theoretically it's possible for young offenders to still be alive when the person becomes eligible for parole. The ADM doesn't agree with this proposal for three reasons. First of all, we must rely exclusively 
on the most lenient application of the provision, 50 years. Whereas when we look at the provision, one of its characteristics is not to have a ceiling to be able to get to a thousand years. Secondly, the reasoning only works in specific cases when the offender is uh, young enough. Thirdly, as the Chief Justice uh, underscored earlier, the reasoning must take for granted that the average life expectancy of Canadians, the former's 80 years, is valid for federal offenders, whereas statistics have shown a reduced life expectancy for those people. As my colleague, as my friend has just said, there are also important impacts to when people are in prison for many years. For all these reasons, the conclusion of this court on the nature of the provision should not depend on its theoretical application, the most lenient theoretical application, that's for one. Secondly, and last point, the ADM would like to rapidly clarify the notion of cruel penalty by nature. Cruel penalties by nature cannot be assessed based on the type of suffering it caused. Let's take uh, the, Smith case, uh, the Smith case. Irrespective of the number of lashes, lashing is cruel. Lashing may seem less cruel than a certain number of years imprisonment, but Canada doesn't allow for even one lash. The quantity is not the matter. The problem is the nature or the type of penalty. Here, the ADM is saying that it's the same thing a life sentence without possibility of a realistic end should never be inflicted on any Canadian under no circumstances for the reason that Canada refuses imposition of such penalties. So it's not the fact that some offenders will die of natural causes while in prison that makes the provision unconstitutional. It's also, not the total number of years spent behind bars that makes the penalty unconstitutional. What is unconstitutional is that in its punitive toolbox, the government has the possibility of inflicting a life sentence without review. These types of penalties have already been tried in arbiter contra Twelve of the Charter by just Laforet in Lyons. What the ADM is asking is calling upon this court to rule in the same way and to conclude that a life sentence or a sentence that is indeterminate without possibility of parole offends the Charter of Rights. The details can be found in the Inner Index book. Thank you. Eric Penske. Thank you, Chief Justice. The intervener CDAS submits on this appeal that parole and eligibility periods longer than 25 years amount to grossly disproportionate punishment contrary to Section 12 of the Charter. A life sentence with 25 years of parole and eligibility is itself a significant <clears throat> and weighty sentence. For multiple murders, this sentence, that is 25 years of parole and eligibility, 
gives effect to the relevant sentencing principles of denunciation, deterrence, and retribution. At the same time, such a sentence, such a sentence does not lose sight of the pr sentencing principles of rehabilitation, restraint, and as well the overarching principle of protecting the public and public safety. For this, for this reason, CDAS submits that a sentence of longer ineligibility periods of 25 years does not give effect to the relevant sentencing principles. Most importantly, so-called stacked ineligibility periods of 50, 75, and 100 years, precisely what Parliament intended when it enacted 745.51, does not serve or give effect to all relevant sentencing principles and there, thus infringes Section 12 of the Charter. Can I ask you a question, Mr. Persky, please? Someone is convicted of first-degree murder, and they're sentenced to life imprisonment without parole for 25 years. Ten years into their sentence, they commit another first-degree murder. Um, can the parole ineligibility be made consecutive, or does it have to be concurrent? Um, I, I, I could check that. It, it sort of centers on some, uh, the rules on consecutive sort of center on some Oh, no, I'm sorry, it doesn't, because you said more than 25 years, I think, is unconstitutional. Right. So your answer must be it has to be concurrent. It, it would, and in my, my, my basic submission here is that anything beyond 25 years is, is unconstitutional. Well, because this would be because he'd have still 15 left to serve on right. the first, and then to add another 25, that would be 40. So you would say, can't do it, doesn't matter, we're stuck. Well, not, not necessarily stuck. Um, it would be 25 years of parole ineligibility. The offender would have to uh, reach his period of ineligibility, regardless of whether he was rehabilitated or not, of no risk. And then he would have to persuade the parole board uh, to release him, notwithstanding the fact that he's been convicted of two murders. Now, it's my ultimate submission that the board, in assessing risk and the, on the ultimate question of release, would necessarily look at that in assessing whether this man can be released or not. Why so can't the board, Go ahead. So the board would necessarily consider all that in determining the risk. So there's no... Uh, Justice Moldaver, there's no free pass or, or sort of volume discount here because the offender is going to have to show the board and the board's going to is, is statutory obligated to consider all those factors each That's individual offense when and in the degree of responsibility of the offenders the views of each victim in assessing risk so in my submission there is no sort of free pass in all this but when we talk about the the, the 25 year of 20 uh, 25 year period of ineligibility these are significant sentences, and, in, and, in, and indeed, since Parliament has abolished the faint hope process, and that was a key moderating aspect of the 25-year period in eligibility, that's gone now, since he, and it has been gone since 1997, since multiple murders. Okay, but what's, uh, magic, what's magic about 25 years then, Mr. Pertzky? You're saying anything beyond is unconstitutional. What, what's magic other than that's the number in the criminal code that Parliament chose? Well, 25 years is a is a is a is a is a number that is a is a degree of time that Parliament has determined uh, based after it abolished capital punishment. Right. And in my submission, um, the 25-year period 
it shows after a certain period of time, the, the, the questions of risk are dealt with by the parole board. And 25 years, in my submission, is a, is, an, is, a, is a degree of time which fits within, as the Quebec Court of Appeals said in this case, fits within the, uh, within, a, within offender's normal lifespan. So 25 years fits within that. And it gives, it allows the offender an opportunity to rehabilitate themselves with 25 years, but at the same time giving effect to the principles of denunciation deterrence, which is why we have the in, in, initial ineligibility period. Thank well, you very much. Any further questions? Those are my submissions. Yeah. Thank you. Aaron Dan. Yes, thank you. Good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices. It's the position of the Queen's Prison uh, Law Clinic. We urge the court to adopt the two-track uh, methodology uh, set out in the paper by Professors Kerr and Berger, which we heard from uh, about this morning. And in, and in particular, that the court find that the constitutional complaint in this case uh, is best understood as a methods track complaint. We argue that the uh, imposition of multiple periods of parole and eligibility does not change the quantum of sentence. Um, as we heard this morning, every offender who is convicted of murder is sentenced to life in prison and each offender only has one life to give. Instead, we argue that by eliminating the possibility of parole, this provision changes the quality of the punishment. It declares the human life irredeemable at the outset of the sentence, and in doing so denies the offender an essential element of their human dignity. This type of punishment, we say, by its very nature, uh, runs afoul of Section 12. And we ask the court to articulate the proper, uh, an appropriate analytical framework for assessing when methods, types of punishment may, uh, uh, will fall outside what is permissible. The focus in these cases is not on what the offender deserves, as it would be in a severity track case, but rather on what the state is limited and it can do, whether it can impose this type of sentence in any situation. But Ms. Dan, I think you would agree that there are first-degree murders and there are first-degree murders. The mother who kills four children because she's depressed and despair and she's been physically and mentally abused by her husband and she just, her life is hopeless. And so she plans to take her children with her and then commit suicide, but she doesn't succeed is a little bit different than a case like this, where you have a multiple murderer who's involved in hate crimes against vulnerable, marginalized groups, who shows no remorse, uh, who keeps um, reloading his gun. His only remorse is that he didn't kill more, and he keeps coming back and actually killing people who are still alive. Um, I would have thought there's a little bit of a difference between first-degree murders. And, and to me, despite the answer that we got from some of your colleagues, I would have thought there is a basis for Parliament to say, as long as it is proportional in a way, 
You know what, Judge? You can increase, say, up, up to five years for each one to a maximum of X, whether it's 40 years or whatever. That's within your discretion. Is there something wrong with that? Is that automatically unconstitutional? When, when, when I've given you two examples, one is a very sympathetic case, and the other one is beyond description. We don't disagree that, that Parliament is entitled to provide uh, sentencing judges with some manner of better, uh, of giving more proportionate sentences, which recognize the different degrees of uh, culpability that various murderers may have. What we say is they can't choose this method. The method that they have chosen is unconstitutional. It may well be that there are some offenses so malignant, some offenders so morally culpable that no punishment meted out would uh, be proportionate to the wrong done and the harm caused. But on the methods track, we say that proportionality isn't the question, judicial discretion isn't the question, uh, the question is, what can the state do without betraying its values and its, uh, its commitment to human dignity? And if the punishment is cruel and unusual by its nature, it never lies in the hands of the state to impose, no matter the severity of the offense or the culpability of the offender. The, there are solutions to increasing proportionality for, um, for multiple murders and for even single murderers who might well have different standards. But the one that Parliament chose in this case exceeds constitutional bounds and must be found to violate Section 12. Ms. Dan, does your approach, your methods track approach, uh, result in uh, essentially converting rehabilitation into a principle of fundamental justice? I know you're making the argument under Section 12. You've already said proportionality. Uh, it doesn't do that with proportionality, but does it do that with rehabilitation? Chief Justice, if I could um, Absolutely. have additional Go ahead. time to answer. Thank you. Uh, I would submit that rehabilitation is a fundamental principle of justice in the sense that any deprivation of liberty by the state must be conducted in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice and in accordance with our fundamental respect for human dignity. And a sentence such as this one, a death in prison sentence, which declares the person irredeemable despite any efforts or success at atonement or rehabilitation, denies that basic human dignity. And in that sense, yes, rehabilitation is a critical uh, and fundamental principle of, of sentencing in Canada. Thank you very much. Uh, Simon Boris. Thank you. Good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices. The Canadian Prison Law Association's submissions consider the relationship between Section 745.51 and the federal correctional and parole systems. Ultimately, the CPLA's position is that 745.51 violates both sections 7 and 12 of the Charter. Turning first to section 12, the CPLA submits that 745.51 is irreconcilable with the rehabilitative purpose of the federal correctional and parole systems. As set out in section 3B of the Corrections and Conditional Release Act, the CCRA, 
the purpose of the federal correctional system is to contribute to the maintenance of a just, peaceful, and safe society by assisting in the rehabilitation of offenders and their reintegration into the community as law-abiding citizens. Similarly, the purpose of the uh, the purpose of conditional release, which can be found in Section 100 of the CCRA, is to contribute to the maintenance of a just, peaceful, and safe society by means of decisions on the timing and conditions of release that will best facilitate the rehabilitation of offenders and their reintegration into the community as law-abiding citizens. There is a notable absence of any limiting language in the CCRA, its regulations, the CCRR, or the, commissioner, the Correctional Services Commissioner's Directives that creates any class of inmates for whom these purposes are not intended to apply. But 745.51 de facto creates a class of inmates who may have no hope of ever being reintegrated by members of society, regardless of how low risk they may be for reoffending, because they will die in prison before they even become eligible for parole. This, the CPLA submits, is grossly disproportionate, especially when taking into account the practical effects of a sentence of this length, which we outline in our factum in paragraphs 11 to 19, but which I will not go over in my oral submissions today. Turning then to section seven, as the Quebec Court of Appeal noted in paragraph 135, there are two objectives to 745.51. The CPLA submits that the that 745.51 is overbroad with respect to the first objective, that of protecting society from the most incorrigible killers, because it does not take into account the function of the Parole Board of Canada, which is to ensure that inmates being considered for parole do not present an undue risk to society and that their release will contribute to the protection of society by facilitating their reintegration. The paramount consideration for the board is, in fact, the protection of society, section 100.1. Well, 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 that doesn't mean it's overbroad. That just means there's someone else other than the Court of Appeal um, checking to ensure that, that this is not, the sentence is not imposed or administered in a way that, that uh, is not restricted to the incorrigible offender. I mean, I'm, the, the argument that you're faced with um, in some of these factums is, that any that any excessive sentence right that, that that should not have been imposed because this person is not an incorrigible offender can be dealt with by way of an appeal right? that's an arg that's that's an argument for example that that the uh, that the Muslim lawyers advance you are saying well it's not overbroad or rather it is overbroad because we already have the parole board but as I just see it, that's a second layer of protection. It may mean that the law is unnecessary, but is that overbroad? Uh, thank you, Justice Brown. I, I, I would argue that uh, that it is because the um, this is uh, the parole board is uh, something that's it's already baked into the system that the the parole board will be uh, at the very least the last resort to regulate. Um, the return of offenders into society and and ultimately give effect to that important principle of, of rehabilitation. Well, so so those these laws may be superf superfluous and unnecessary. I could probably go through the criminal code and identify 60 or 70 that I think are superfluous and unnecessary, but 
it doesn't make them overbroad. I mean, I just, I'm just not understanding the argument, and maybe that's my failing. Um, Justice Brown, I think that uh, uh, ultimately the the argument about overbreadth is that uh, this provision, 745.51, uh, goes too far uh, in terms of uh, uh, giving the courts the power to impose these sentences uh, when there is there is simply uh, no need to, to do so given the uh, function of the parole board. Um, I, I see that my time is up. I, I'm happy to continue discussing that if, uh, if the court wishes. Thank you very much. Ms. Stefani Di Giuseppe. Good afternoon. On behalf of the CCLA, I submit that Section 745.51 is incongruent with persuasive sources of international and comparative human rights law. I will make two points in this regard. First, that the lower court was correct to consider international instruments, and this court should do the same. And second, that while you can reach this result on the basis of domestic law alone, if you do so, you would be in good company because the jurisprudence of the Grand Chamber of the European Court of Human Rights, particularly the Vinter decision, offers support and confirmation for that result. First, I submit that this court must consider international sources which mandate that prisoners are treated with respect for their human dignity and which affirm the central importance of rehabilitation and reintegration into a just and humane penal system, a value we've recognized in Lacasse. These principles are derived also from persuasive sources summarized in my written submissions. Of them, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights is particularly important to the analysis under Quebec Inc. because it was ratified pre-charter and as such it attracts the presumptive authority conferred by the principle of conformity. Internationally, the ICCPR has been interpreted as underlying a prohibition against irreducible sentences. To the extent that this section permits judges to impose sentences that rule out rehabilitation and social reintegration, Canada steps out of line with the goals and values of the ICCPR and threatens to move away from Chief Justice Dixon's commitment to Canadians that our charter will provide protection at least as great as that afforded by international human rights documents which we have ratified. The Rome Statute is interesting here as well it has presumptive value in, by virtue of having been ratified, but it doesn't operate the same way the ICCPR does in this case, not because we haven't adopted it into our domestic jurisprudence, but because we're not looking here at a provision that prescribes an obligation. Rather, it is useful to us because it represents an international consensus on what constitutes an exemplary sentence for the most heinous crimes, many of which by their definition involve mass murder. Also persuasive are instruments emanating from the Council of Europe. And that brings me to my second point. The Vinter decision is useful to this court because it emanates from the Council of Europe where Canada has enjoyed observer status since 1996, indicating support for the council's guiding principles. It's also a legal system which shares Canadian values and theoretical approaches towards human dignity, principles of punishment and limits on punishment and also just simply because it's persuasive um, and well-reasoned. In Vinter, the court interpreted Article 3 as requiring that life sentences be both de jure and de facto reducible. There must be both a prospect of release and a possibility of review because these are essential components of human dignity. 
The Vinter Court recognizes that even those who commit abhorrent and egregious crimes retain their fundamental humanity and carry within themselves the capacity to change. Radical transformation may be rare justices, but it is not impossible. If a person has the capacity for true rehabilitation and we deny them the means, that is revenge, it is injustice. When we impose sentences that have no mechanism for release of the rehabilitated prisoner, we have locked a person up and thrown away the key. Or Chief Justice, as you eloquently put it earlier, we impose a sentence of death by incarceration. And we co-op the most innate and basic human desire, the desire to survive, and turn it into little more than a tool to maintain and prolong suffering. And I think these ideas uh, speak to your earlier question, Justice Casaray, when you asked what is it about the nature of the punishment that makes it cruel and reprehensible. This type of punishment is incompatible with a system designed to entrench the value of human dignity in our society. Now, I agree with the submissions also made by the respondent today that the Hutchinson decision does not uh, modify these principles from Vinter. The Hutchinson decision says that clemency may make a sentence de facto reducible if the clemency system provides for release on the basis of rehabilitation. The English system does, Canada does not, and that's clear from the ministerial guidelines, which do not explicitly per, uh, direct the minister to release people if they have been rehabilitated. In conclusion, uh, if I may just sum up, the most compelling lesson Vinter teaches us is that striving for rehabilitation is constitutionally required in any community that establishes human dignity as its centerpiece. Canada is one such country. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ms. Danielle Rabitaille. Good afternoon. The Noor test for gross disproportionality is ill-suited to the constitutional question presented in this case. We urge on the court to adopt the test set out by Justice McIntyre and Smith for a cogent three-category test for assessing whether a punishment meets the definition of cruel and unusual under Section 12 in the Charter. In Justice McIntyre's judgment in Smith, a punishment will be cruel and unusual and violate Section 12 of the Charter if it has any one or more of the following characteristics. One, character or duration that outrages the public consciousness. Two, the punishment goes beyond what is necessary for the achievement of valid social aims. Or three, the punishment is arbitrarily imposed in the sense that it's applied, it's not applied on a rational basis in accordance with ascertained or ascertainable standards. We recommend this test to you for its analytical clarity in that any category of sentence, any sentence can be measured against these, as I have termed them, categories of cruelty to determine whether the sentence violates Section 12 of the Charter. I'll use my time to highlight uh, two aspects of the impugned section that we say are offensive against Justice McIntyre's test. I address the third and the first category, arbitrariness and outrage to the public consciousness. The discretionary stacking of life sentences is cruel and especially unusual because it is unmoored from the Canadian sentencing principles and therefore it is arbitrary. 
The purpose of the legislation is to extinguish even the faintest, most remote hope of release and rehabilitation. Justice Wagner, your decision in La Caz for the majority set out that rehabilitation was one of the main objectives of the criminal law, that it is a fundamental moral value of Canadian society, and that it distinguishes it from other countries, and that rehabilitation guides courts in imposing a just and appropriate sentence. The, the aim of stacked life sentences is to completely frustrate rehabilitation. And my friend, Mr. Rupik, used the word subordinate rehabilitation. And in my submission, that is completely incorrect. It obliterates it. The purpose of the impugned section is also to met out a kind of proportionality that accords closer to the barbarism of an eye for an eye than the well-settled principles of proportionality known to our sentencing law that encompass principles of rehabilitation, totality, restraint. The section invites trial judges to engage in a crass math that is not logically connected in any way with ascertain or ascertainable standards of sentencing. It is this disconnection from rehabilitation and this perversion of proportionality that makes the sentence alien, arbitrary, and unusual in the, within the meaning of Section 12. And it meets the definition of cruelty set out by Justice McIntyre. Once more, the BCCLA submits that the section also meets the first category of cruelty in that, by its very nature, shocks the conscience of Canadians. And I urge you to review the BC Court of Appeal decision in Simmons, which will provide some assistance on this question of outrage of the public consciousness. The court reviews the 20-year history uh, of the Faint Hope Clause in Canada, where one quarter of the uh, eligible offenders applied uh, for uh, a faint hope. They went before juries, and over 80% of those applicants were successful in reducing their ineligibility periods before juries. That is, members of the Canadian community who were impaneled to consider the overall fairness of continuing to confine lifetime offenders consistently and for many offenders saw fit to reduce the parole in ineligibility periods for murderers serving life sentences who had already served 15 years. You seem in to be suggesting that one day more than the moment at which a prisoner is rehabilitated is cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, if I have, uh, that's my mistake, Justice Rowe. The, the, the aspect of the legislation that makes it cruel and unusual is the complete extinguishing uh, of the possibility. Uh, and so it may be that the, the thing that the mischief of the section is that uh, no matter if the offender is successful or unsuccessful in the end, um, he will never have the opportunity. It is extinguished from the outset. Ms. Um, I'm sorry. Yes. Ms. Robitaille, uh, Justice Brown has the last question for you. Thank you. Um, Ms. Robitaille, I'm, go I'm going to acknowledge with some embarrassment that I haven't read Justice McIntyre's reasons in Smith for some time, and that's because there were four or five different reasons that can comprise the majority in that's Smith. Right. 
those I've looked at recently, but but none of them were his. His was a dissent. So Correct. so um, these three categories that you've identified have they been judicially adopted uh, in any authoritative uh, statements of this court or any other? They they have not. Um, they have not. And I and I urge you to take a look at at the decision. The attractiveness yeah. in my submission is that it incorporates this concept of arbitrariness that we find in uh, Section 7. And it, in my submission, falls closer in line to the instinctive, um, almost uh, gut-reactive uh, uh, um, sentiments expressed by the court in today's hearing um, and, and draw us closer to the real problem uh, of this section. And in addition, I think it provides the opportunity for a clear dialogue with Parliament, that this court has an opportunity to say, Parliament, when you're designing punishment, the, the problem, the thing that will make it cruel and unusual is if you extinguish the hope or the potential or the possibility yeah. no, of I, rehabilitation. No, I get that. I just, I just wanted to understand the, the, the legal authority. It doesn't mean that it's not something we ought not to consider, but it Anyways, you've answered my question. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Maître Paris, uh, réplique. Chief Justice, Justices, thank you for giving me the opportunity to reply. It will be short. I'll be focusing on two points. Of course, the matters raised before your court and representations by my learned friends have led me to two specific points. First of all, this morning, I talked about a certain constitutional principle or standard that, that the respondents were associating, the 25-year standard. And your questions have made me ask myself the same question. There's no constitutional principle from your court or other courts that recognize a principle that constitutionalizes the bar we set in 76 at 25 years for ineligibility to parole after a mother. My defense uh, colleagues said that after 25 years, beyond that, it becomes constitutional. And the Court of Appeal in paragraph 103 says this very clearly and tells us that we must ignore the argument saying that the protection of hope prevails over, uh, over the matter. The person should be able to ask for parole. The Court of Appeal takes this 25 years and raises it to become a constitutional standard. And I relate the same thing to rehabilitation. It becomes a principle for sentencing, which we're trying to raise to a constitutional standard, whereas the Magali uh, case I mentioned this morning says that sentencing, these issues are not protected constitutionality. The same with denunciation in another extreme. In some cases, denunciation, for example, is totally ignored in sentencing. So. With this constitutional standard of 25 years, as well as the rehabilitation principle, they are being raised to become constitutional standards, whereas your court in the Magali case had said the contrary. First point. My second point is that 
there's a precision that arises from questions put to my learned friend uh, as to why seven and those and why seven before 12. We are aware that it changes uh, the scope of things. This morning, I said that since we're not talking about a minimum sentence and that there are excessive arguments that are being put forward to the court, what I tried to tell you this morning is that otherwise, to carry out an analysis of Section 12, whereas there are still concerns when it has to do with overbreath, could compromise the analysis of Section 12. So there's a danger that the allegations that were made on overbread could find themselves under the 12th test. We talked about the legislative purpose and the penological objective and the impact of this provision on the rights of individuals. And what we wanted to draw attention to is that if there are some arguments left on overbread concerning Section 12, this could vitiate the reasoning under Section 12. We are aware that for other minimum sentences, the opposite was done. But here, the arguments, and my defense uh, colleague, Mr. Gosling, said that these arguments are interrelated when he answered a question about overbreadth, which are preserved under Section 12. So when we apply Attention. the Section 12 test, we must make sure that there's no overbreadth arguments that are not dealt with and that may undermine the analysis of Section 12. Those were the two clarifications I wanted to bring. Thank you. I want to thank Council for highly appreciated arguments. The Court will take the matter under advisement. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Good day.